Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where it is time, John. We are entering into the world of Quentin Tarantino. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Yeah, I just survived some epithets and some bullets to get in here, so I'm totally in the mood to uh, uh, go into the season of Quentin Tarantino for sure, Uh, a filmmaker that I, you know, just remember being um, so life-changing i guess for lack of a better term or yeah. eye-opening in my experience back in the 90s in the independent film movement and you know joe uh, steve we love doing these um seasons of directors and i think this one is going to be an unusual one for both of us to dive into we've got some great guests and some great conversations to be had i absolutely agree and i, I mean i don't think he's necessarily my favorite director of the last three years but there is a very strong argument that he is among the most important 
directors of the last 30 years. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And by the way, this is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host and uh, voiceover guy down here in San Diego, California. Just want to throw that in. There are a lot of cinephiles out there who just went, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> I just, who is this clown? Who is what's this going on here? That, 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 that can't be John. That's not John. And as we did last year with Spike Lee, we have a bunch of guests who are going to join us mm-hmm. for this conversation just about the life and films of quentin tarantino and you're going to hear their voices as we go along and they are hey i'm andre gordon i am a director actor and screenwriter uh i i love voiceover i love film and i just am excited to be here today with you guys uh, my name is david mckenna i have been a screenwriter since i was 19 years old I finally got rid of my waiter's job when I was 25 when I sold American History X, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, I'm Eric Rogers. Um, I uh, am a kids animation television writer. My name is Scott Nance, and I have been a Quentin Tarantino fan since, of course, 1992. This is a great group of people, John. I am super excited about having them join us on this journey. Yeah, I was very, uh, we were very honored, uh, certainly very blessed to have them uh, carve out some time in their very busy schedule, especially as we go in, going into the new year to take some time to sit down with us and answer some questions and answer some, um, and get their thoughts rather, and their uh, opinions about Quentin Tarantino and his movies. And I was very surprised by some of the responses we got. And I was very, and I enjoyed a lot of the responses we got as well. It gave me another window into all those people as a film uh, lovers of film and, and what they feel about Quentin Tarantino and the work he has produced um, over the last few decades. Absolutely. And they certainly elicit strong opinions and definitely is hugely influential. I think on every one of our guests as we yeah. have these conversations. Yeah. One way or another. Yeah. How did you first come to Quentin Tarantino? I saw an ad in the LA times, like the actual paper. And it was like this cartoonish t- kind of ad, an illustrated ad of these guys in these really cool black suits with these black ties. It said something about Sundance and it had all these like critical reactions from it. And I was just intrigued by the style of the ad. And that was literally the first memory I have at all of Tarantino is the ad in the LA Times for Reservoir Dogs. Well, I had read about Reservoir Dogs at Sundance. And I I went inside and there was probably about 15 people in there and the lights went down. And for a hundred minutes, I watched the singular greatest film experience I had ever experienced in my life. Everything that he did in that movie and and the fact that he did it for 1.2 or 1.4 was so damn amazing to me. And it just... I was a struggling screenwriter at the time, and it just, I literally left the theater. I went back to my place. I lived on 19th Street in, in Arizona and Santa Monica. I pulled my roommate off the couch, and I go, we're going to go watch this. I wanted to go back. I watched it again. I have never in my life watched a movie back-to-back in the theater like that before. It was just everything that I wanted my career to be. And I was jealous that he wrote that instead of me. My first experience of Tarantino was likely with John Stephen Rocha at some theater, AMC 20 or AMC 19, down there in Tallahassee. And we would see everything. Anything that came out, we were in line at 11 o'clock waiting for it to come out. And Tarantino's no exception. You know, the first Tarantino film I saw was Pulp Fiction. 
I saw that my senior year of college and uh, it immediately became my favorite film ever. Well, it was really interesting. The, the, the way I came to Quentin Tarantino is, you know, it's the, it's the nineties. It's the early nineties. I am in my twenties, just newly minted in my twenties. I am um, kind of working a dead end job a little bit. I'm looking at this. I'm in the service as a reservist and I'm kind of glimpsing the possibility of film. I'm understanding, you know, what it, what it started in my teen years, this obsession with film. I'm moving into this place in my phase of my life where I'm like, okay, how do I understand and analyze film? I'm reading Pauline Kale interviews that are compiled. I'm going back and watching some Siskel and Ebert stuff. I'm reading interview, I'm reading reviews in a paper, and then I'm reading Entertainment Weekly. And Entertainment Weekly tells me that there's this new filmmaker and it might even be, and it's kind of ironic that we're recording this at this time. I think it was around this Sundance time that there right. was this rumbling of this filmmaker and this film, Reservoir Dogs. And I remember that being something that distinctly broke through um, my mind. And there was something about the description of the film. There was something about the shot of Harvey Keitel pointing the, pointing the gun. I think it's Steve Buscemi who's down on the ground that I was like, I got to see this. For whatever reason, I've got to see this. I'm wide open and my mind is a big sponge ready to soak in all this stuff. And I went to my local, because um, I couldn't see it uh, you know, at the time because it had come out. I went to my local video store and rented the movie and watched Reservoir Dogs. And that was my first experience with Quentin Tarantino on a VHS, on a 27-inch television, 25-inch television watching it and i watched it four times that night over and over wow. and over again uh my roommate wasn't uh home at the time he was out for the weekend and i just sat and rewatched it over and over and over again because i was just so blown away by what i'd witnessed and i realized in that moment that i had seen something different something unique something i'd never seen before and yes he'd been influenced you could tell the influences even as a newer type of film fan I could tell the influences uh, for what he was doing, especially having lived through the 70s. But there was just something about his delivery, the dialogue, the construction of that film, and the confidence for a debut film as a filmmaker that radiated off the screen uh, and immediately hooked me. And I knew in that moment that this was a voice and a director that we were all going to have to pay attention to. My experience is very much the same. And what I think is, is what's interesting to me about Quentin Tarantino, for me personally, mm. is in a weird way, he's the culmination of a whole bunch of stuff I was getting into mm -hmm. at that time in my life. Because, and I even think, and I, I, I can't wait till, because the two movies we're going to do, by the way, are Reservoir Dogs and Django Unchained. That's what we're going to be doing as we move forward in our season of Tarantino. But the, I think there's like an image of a, of a Frank Miller comic, I think in one of the walls at like Mr. Orange's place in Reservoir Dogs, mm. or maybe, you know, it might be Sin City. I don't remember, but like that was what I was into right. was these hyper violent, hyper masculine yeah. things, because yeah. that's what came along in comics in the mid eighties and in the late eighties and in the early nineties, we'd gotten to like Sin City. And I just like, yeah. that was the stuff I was eating up. That was the kind of books I was reading. I was watching all these Hong Kong films because yeah. that's where we were starting to get access to them. I'd seen my first John Woo films. And so then I too, I'd seen this poster about Reservoir Dogs. I'd heard about it. I don't think I saw it in the theater either. Yeah. I think I rented it at the apartment I had right. in Walnut Creek with Jeff Johnson and we watched it and just were totally blown away and watched it many, many, many times. It was just, 
it was one of those movies who kept going back. I think it's a watershed moment for me at that age. Yeah, agreed. Same. And, and I kept inviting people over to my apartment who were friends of mine, film fans, to show them the movie. So I would rent it numerous times yeah. to show them to friends to kind of get them to under, like, am I alone on this? What do you think? Like, it was one of those things where you shared with somebody. It was like, this is going to blow your mind, man. You're going to love this. Uh, and I just remember holding a few of those kind of screenings, for lack of a better term, of Reservoir Dogs uh, for my friends there in my living room. Seeing Reservoir Dogs for the first time was like hearing uh, Sergeant Pepper for the very first time. Uh, it was just like, I, I just didn't know how to process it, uh, but I knew that what I was watching was something special. The way he moved the camera for for the, the waiter scene, the fact that um, you had actors talking this way to each other, almost like it was a play. I think in Reservoir Dogs, we see once again Quentin Tarantino's brilliant use of nonlinear storytelling. The reveals and the payoff only come if he tells the story in this nonlinear way. But yes, this whole idea of like what happened, what happened with the heist, like what where, what went wrong and like trying to follow along. It was a challenging film that required your undivided attention. I remember vividly um, when Buscemi gets hit by the car and he turns on the officers and he fires 18 or to 20 rounds off or whatever was in his clip. I had never seen gun violence that graphic and that explosive come out of a gun before. It's the little things that make stuff brilliant and that stuff that carries with you. And I think that's what Quentin really was a master at. I just remember uh, trying to eat my popcorn, but being totally grossed out by it uh, during the ear cutting scene with stuck in the middle. Holy friggin' moly. That scene still is uh, shocking. I really love how he, he's taken these dregs of society and opened the door for us to connect to them in a way where when we lose them, we feel something. Felt like I made a discovery, a discovery like I did when I saw Star Wars or when I saw Close Encounters or when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the, the movies that defined our childhood, but this was something completely different. And we're not going to go deep into Reservoir Dogs today because we are going to go seriously deep into Reservoir Dogs coming up soon because... We put out our survey last year, and the movie of our early films you most wanted us to redo was Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. That was, John, the eighth film we ever talked about on The Cinephiles. It was in August August 3rd of 2016. Mm. So needless to say, we're going to go a bit deeper this time. Yeah. But right now what we're going to do is do what we do every time, every year at this time, which is to go through the life of this person. And I got to tell you, I had a very strange reaction as I was researching Quentin Tarantino. It's strangely enough, the director that we have covered that I kept thinking about was Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. Do you want to know why our exploring of Quentin Tarantino reminded me of Alfred Hitchcock? Please. Well, the first thing is, is that a lot of the directors we've talked about, a lot of the great directors of all time, it's not that they don't have a style, but they do move around to different kinds of stories in different kinds of genres. You know, we talk about whether it's Steven Spielberg or Coppola or Scorsese or Kubrick, you can see them doing different stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, that's not really true. You know, he makes Hitchcock films. Right. The same is true of Tarantino. Tarantino makes Tarantino films. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, there's a World War II one, and yes, there's a Western-y one, but that's 
they're really Tarantino films. Right. And this is the thing that really struck me as I was learning about his life, which is that, do you remember when we did Hitchcock, the event from his childhood that we kind of talked about maybe setting him in the direction that he was to go? Yeah, his father, right? Like, yes. um, what, locking him in the room closet or what did he do? His father sent him to the police department That's at it. five years old with yeah. a note in his hand. He didn't read the note. He was told to hand it to the policeman. He hands it to the policeman. The policeman reads it, says, okay, come with me, takes him to the back and locks him in a jail cell. Yeah. And the note, and then hands him the note, which says, this is what happens to little boys who are naughty. Yeah. Oof. Now, I don't know exactly what effect that has on the movies that Hitchcock goes making forward, but there's so much connection there. Scared straight. Now well, and it's also unique he way. Yeah. He didn't know what he had done. Maybe right. he hadn't done anything. Maybe he had done something. He was falsely imprisoned. There's so much of like the themes of Hitchcock that relate to that moment. Mm -hmm. Reading about Quentin Tarantino's childhood. There is so much that I think sets up the kind of filmmaker and the kind of films he wants to make. Mm. And part of this, too, by the way, is I he just put out a book called Cinema Speculation, which is about his it's it's kind of a book reviewing movies. And it's also kind of about his childhood and his perspective on movies. And that certainly informed what I was thinking. So here's some here's some information. He was born in 1963 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. His dad was an aspiring actor and his dad left his mom before he was born. Oh, so wow. this is the bit. This is the big thing. I think mm -hmm. grew up without a dad. Mom moves, and by the way, do you know where the name Quentin came from? Come no. From? He is named after Quint Asper. Now, I didn't recognize that name, but my dad would have certainly recognized that name because Quint Asper is the name of Burt Reynolds' character in the TV show Gunsmoke. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So that's a manly, manly moniker to get hit with. His mom moves back to L.A., and this is the thing. She took him to the movies. Yeah. She uh, remarried, was married for about five years to a musician. Yeah. And rather than hire a babysitter, they just went, let's, let's take little five-year-old Quentin along to see these films in the movie theater, no matter what they were. And the first one that made a big impression on him is the one I've never seen, but I've heard about a lot and I probably should watch, which is Joe with Peter Boyle. And in Joe, which is a late 60s, early, I think it's a late 60s movie. Mm -hmm. It is dark and disturbing. And he saw people laughing at things, but he also saw them laughing in a way that was uncomfortable. Hmm. You know that laugh you have when you can't believe that somebody just said that or somebody yeah. just did that? Yeah. That is the thing that he fell in love with. They took him to carnal knowledge when he was eight. Mm-hmm. They took him to Deliverance in 1972 when he was nine. So when he's a little kid, if he said he was bored by the more grown-up movie, mm -hmm. his mom said, well, I guess we should just leave you at home with a babysitter next time. <laughs> so he learned real quick not to say that he was bored right. or not to say that he didn't understand. And he loved listening to the adults talk about the movie on the way home. That was mm -hmm. part of the best part of the whole thing. Yeah. And you know what he did after he saw these movies? is he what? went to school and he told the whole story to all his friends. Mm. And he became, this is how he got um, admiration. This is how, this is what built up his ego is he was the kid led in to see the adult stuff and then he could perform it all for his friends. MASH, Godfather, Clute. These are the films he's going to see. And then 
of course, starts to come the 70s action and black exploitation movies. Right. One of the movies his mom didn't take him to was when they went to see the very first, what is known as the very first black exploitation film, which is Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, Melvin Van Peebles. I remember that one. Yeah. Now, he didn't get taken to that. It's an X-rated movie, by the way. Yeah. His mom says that she hated it, but all his mom talked about for weeks was that movie. And after that point, for a long time, she only dated African-Americans. Huh. Interesting. Now, I'm not saying what that means exactly. Right. But that was important enough to Quentin Tarantino for him to talk about it in his book. And now the boyfriends start to come in. Hmm. Many of whom are African-American, many of whom really like films, and they start to take him to movies. Interesting. Yep. Okay. And this is where I go like, I really think a big part of this is a kid without a dad mm-hmm, mm-hmm. searching for a father figure. I grew up without father. I've never met my father. And I'm just saying this, I'm just hypothesizing here, but I think that when you don't have a father, like with me, I write aggressively. I never really had a dad to tell me, behave like this or mellow out or don't do that. You know, I never had a dad tell me what to do. And when you don't have that, you know, you just kind of from a writing style, I think that you just, and I know this sounds maybe a little ridiculous, but I think that you just sort of have this a little bit more aggression of how you perceive adults and how they talk to each other. And I think that's one aspect of, you know, how he views men. And it could be, I might be getting a little psychology, uh, psychological on that, but I think it's part of who you are as a writer, you know, is how you're, how you're raised. But also a kid without a dad, as you said, numerous boyfriends who are black being introduced to black culture, being introduced to the black point of view, being introduced to films that maybe he wouldn't normally have gone to go see had he had a white father, possibly, or a Latino mm-hmm. father, or, or an Asian stepfather, or boyfriend, you know, the, the, all these possibilities open up because we are all, as film fans, we are subject to whoever can take us or help us rent the films. Of course, nowadays it's different. You can have you have access to everything at your fingertips, but back then, when Quentin Tarantino was growing up, you had to rely on an adult to take you to a movie or to show you things or to rent films that were all rated from the video store when that started to be a thing to introduce you to these films. So an interesting um, education on film through different uh, influences and different portals uh, that influenced him and that we see clearly in his movies even more so. There's one boyfriend who's, I think was named, it was Reggie, took him to the movies. Mm-hmm. And he didn't take him to the movies in the white part of town in the white theater. He took him downtown to a big theater showing a double feature of which the second movie was Black Gun starring Jim Brown. Mm. And this movie experience, this is this is the night that changed his life. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is so such a fascinating thing and window into who Quentin Tarantino is in a window into his life. And look, we're not saying we're not psychoanalyzing the guy or whatever. We're not qualified to do that, but certainly we can extrapolate certain things from the facts or from his experiences. And especially as Steve said, if he's written it down in his book, he wants wants you to take an idea of why this stuff influenced him or what worked on him. And certainly having uh, black boyfriends of her mom, of his mom, take him, 
to these movies, get, expose him to these movies right at that age where you are, you know, when you're in your young teen, everything is new. Everything's unique to explore and dive into and have questions about. And your mind is forming about how to interpret this kind of stuff. So wanting to kind of understand it all and being exposed to it. And then if this is the stuff that changed his life, it's because he was already, um, uh, how can I say this? He was already predetermined, I guess, for lack of a better term, to have a proclivity for this, to, to have a connection to this kind of films, to have a, a love for these kinds of films. That is something that I always think is in, instinctually inherent in the person who loves movies. There's always that movie because there's someone else who could have been taken to those that same double bill and would have been bored out of their mind or would have left the theater. But for Tarantino, it worked because of his own sensibilities were already uniquely open to receive that kind of stuff and be affected by those kinds of movies and clearly influence him all the way up until today. Well, and listen what happens on this night. So first of all, I personally... My choice of the perfect movie theater is everyone is quiet. No one talks. It's very respectful of the film. Yeah. But there is an incredible joy about seeing a movie in a predominantly African-American theater mm. where that isn't necessarily the experience. And in this double feature, I don't know what the first movie was, but the audience turned on it. <laughs> and if you've been in a movie theater where an audience turned on it, particularly I, my guess is in 1972 or whatever year this was yeah. in a black part of town when the audience turned on it, little Quentin Tarantino heard the audience yelling out things that he had never heard before, <laughs> including someone's talking back to the screen, yelling, suck my dick. And he looked around because he had never really heard that yeah. and saw everyone laughing and then saw that you could laugh at this thing that he was, you know, you're supposed to get your mouth wiped, washed out with soap or something with this. Yeah. And he thought that was the greatest thing. And then later on, he decided in his little squeaky 10 year old voice to yell, suck my dick. And the big black guys sitting around him that he went to the movie theater with all laughed and patted him on the back. <laughs> I mean, that's going to lock some stuff in. Sure. And, and then the Jim Brown movie starts. He says it was the most masculine night he had ever seen. And it was the most transformative moment he had ever had in his entire life. Mm. I mean, that's big. Yeah. And then I got to say, it's really interesting reading. So if you, if you interviewed me or if I'm writing a book about seventies film, mm -hmm. what I would be talking about is the depth, the humanness, the, sure. the honesty. That is not what Quentin Tarantino is talking about. Like he talks a lot about the film Bullet, which is an interesting movie. Yeah, 1968, and, yeah. And what he says about it is that what he learned from it is that style and cool matter more than plot and story. <laughs> Not what you want a filmmaker to take from a movie, but then again. It's Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, this is that's the core. To me, it's not that he doesn't do plot and story. He totally no. does. Mm -hmm. But he does care about style and cool. And he mm -hmm. does care about things that are at that edge that you can i laugh at this is this funny is this offensive like where is this that's where he lives his movies are very heightened a heightened reality they are highly stylized the cinematography is very sharp and like jumps out at you he his soundtrack most of the time is made up of very very obscure songs from the 60s and the early 70s Again, making it sound like they're really, really new. I got to talk about one more person, and that person is a man named Floyd Ray Wilson. Mm. So Floyd 
was a buddy, African-American guy who was maybe dating his a friend of his mom's or something. Mm-hmm. Couldn't tell if at some point he actually dated mom. And he came in and out of the ter- uh, Quentin's life several times. And his mom introduced him. This is a grown man and says, oh, Quentin, you'll love Floyd. He loves movies. And so Floyd asked him some questions about black exploitation movies as like a test. Yeah. Do you know this actor? Do you know this director? He knew all of them. And then he said, what's your favorite Jim Kelly movie? Now, this was a, a trick question because he knew that if if Floyd answered Enter the Dragon, then obviously he didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. But Floyd said three the hard way, obviously, to which Quentin Tarantino knew this was the kind of guy he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he idolized this guy. And he also learned that this guy was not dependable because he would make promise, I'm coming back next Saturday. We're going to go to the movies all day. And Quentin would wait by the door all day and the guy wouldn't show up. Mm-hmm. And, so the, and, and so this became a pattern at 15 years old quentin tarantino is grounded for shoplifting of all things an elmore leonard novel oh wow the same year that is the same year he dropped out of school and so his mom calls up floyd and says i'm having trouble with quentin he needs a man around and asks him to move into the house now floyd is quentin tarantino says i never learned how this guy made money (laughs) You know, like he was a bit sketchy, came and went sometimes, and he doesn't say that he's a criminal. Quentin says he never saw him do drugs or anything like that, but he's a bit of a hustler. That's what he thought. One of the interesting things about it is Floyd, you know, there are these African-American comedic tropes and actors like Step and Fetch It, like Amos and Andy, and Floyd defended all of those. He thought they were hilarious. He thought they were great. And he said they did what they had to do to get to get money. Right. And now they're rich. So stop making fun of them. Like they, and, and it's just interesting that perspective coming into Quentin Tarantino at that age, mm. you know, what else Floyd was doing while he was living at uh, Quentin's apartment. What's that writing screenplays. Wow. That's cool. These are the first screenplays Quentin ever read were the runs ones that Floyd was working on. And I want to tell you what the two of them are. And we won't go into detail about this because we might talk about this a little more later. Mm. Here are the two screenplays. The first one is called The Mysterious Mr. Black. He is the vengeful spirit of a former slave out for revenge on the descendants of the slave owners. That feels familiar. The second one is called Billy Spencer about a black cowboy named Billy Spencer who is saved, an ex-slave saved by a white family and raised to be a cowboy hero. Interesting. Isn't it? (laughs) All right. Sounds a little bit familiar. Hmm. Another thing, and this is when, what did Quentin Tarantino start to do when he read Floyd's two screenplays? Started to write screenplays. Mm. So he starts writing screenplays, and his mom basically calls it a hobby, puts his writing in air quotes, and says he'll never make money off of it. And he vows at 15 years old, then I will never share any money I ever make on writing screenplays with you. And he never did. Wow. Told his mom, no Elvis Cadillac. I'm never going to buy you a house. I'm not going to do any of those things. And she said, fine, because you're never going to make any money. And that was what happened. Wow. Yeah. And so begins, I would think, I don't know, an interesting conversation to be had about uh, how he views women and how he treats women in his movies. So maybe stemming from this interaction with his mom, his mom not believing in him. Uh, and him having such a strong reaction at 15, which you just said he never went back on. 
which nope. you would think as you get older, you mature, you do some therapy, you figure things out about your life, you uh, kind of mellow on that point of view. But, you know, as you said, he clearly did not. Well, this is what I mean. It's like, we, you know, when we did... Must have um, scarred him, I guess, was I guess what I'm getting at, yeah. And that's what I think, too. And when we did Coppola or, you know, maybe with Wells, we had some of this. Yeah. Where you could see the kind of filmmaker he was going to become from his childhood, yeah. you know, and certainly with Hitchcock. But, man, Tarantino, it's like it's all here. Like yeah. all of all of the things that are leading him the direction he's going to go. For instance, after he dropped out of high school at 15, he needed to get a job. Want to know where he got a job? What? Lied about his age, working in an adult movie theater. <laughs> That's his first wow. job. Wow. Then, of course, he gets the job in the video store. And it sounds like Quentin was pretty famous in this Manhattan Beach video store. Mm-hmm. Because people come in and ask for a recommendation, and Quentin Tarantino knew how to give recommendations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, his first job on a movie set was as a PA on a Dolph Lundgren exercise video. Nice. Right? Yeah. Then he starts to co-write and direct a movie called My Best Friend's Birthday. They filmed about 36 minutes, never completed. <laughs> I didn't know this. Maybe you knew this. I didn't. That in 88, he played an Elvis impersonator on The Golden Girls. <laughs> no, I did not know that. It's wow. in the Sophia's Wedding episode. <laughs> And that money was what supported him while he was writing Reservoir Dogs. Huh. Speaking of which, let's we're, again, we're going to do a deep dive on this later. Mm -hmm. But I think Reservoir Dogs, which is a huge hit at Sundance mm -hmm. and made Sundance in a lot of ways. Sundance and Reservoir Dogs, that's a big deal. Yeah. I think it's all there. I think all the things of Quentin Tarantino we're going to see down the line is all in that film. Absolutely. Like what you see with Citizen Kane. Uh, you know what's going to come. Like with Guy Ritchie, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, you know for the most part what Guy Ritchie's style is going to be going forward. All of that is laid out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Tarantino is one of those rare filmmakers, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, who has his style and can put it in any genre, but retain his style 
and you know yeah. you're watching a Quentin Tarantino movie, no matter when it's set in time. All the stuff we're going to see later, the nonlinear structure, the dark sense of humor, the people chatting about what seems like mundane things. The references to Madonna and the references of old movies, you know, uh, you know, the pop culture references. He was digging tunnels like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape, all that stuff. The way that Tarantino uh, mixes pop culture references and homages into his work has, uh, has definitely in inspired me to do the same. Because I think he made it safe to do that. Um, I think he he made it fun to do that. Quentin Tarantino changed cinema in so many ways because he was inspired by cinema in so many ways. He is a massive movie fan. He loves cult films. He loves black exploitation films. He loves really, really, really obscure films. And he puts the, that influence in his own movies, making it seem like Tarantino is doing that for the first time. I, I also feel like he called back to uh, so many great films of past. Because he's such, a, he's such a movie lover himself. He's, if you liked what I did in this film or that film, then maybe you should go check out, you know, this Kubrick film that um, inspired me to, to do this scene or this you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong film that inspired me to make, to write this story. The violence as well, the brutality in the film um, and the shocking moments of violence as well. The way he executes his violence, there's, there, it's, it's kind of, there's, there's two ways he does it and they both are ex extremely uh, effective. One is just the, kind of the blunt force, holy shit, I can't believe this thing's about to happen to this character sort of violence. Right. So, and, and a hall and a scene that, that is like, you know, easily uh, is reminiscent of that is the scene in uh, Reservoir Dogs when Michael Madsen cuts off the cop's ear. Right. That scene is speaking of funny and being funny and horrific. I mean, it is kind of funny because Michael Madsen is dancing around to this song and he's, and he's waving the, you know, the razor blade around and he makes you so uncomfortable, but you're also like laughing through it because it has this strange comedy vibe to it until Michael Madsen gets down to the nitty gritty of cutting the man's ear off. The scene that literally stopped me from breathing was the moment where Michael Madsen turns on stuck in the middle and he pours gasoline on the security guard and he cuts off his ear and you hear him off camera screaming in excruciating pain. And it's a, I can still hear it in my mind right now. And then you're holy fucking shit. <laughs> he cut the man's ear off and it's, and it's so brutal and it's so brilliant, brilliantly executed because the camera moves off of the scene and all you hear is what's happening until it's done. I think that the violence in Tarantino movies, when I first saw it, it shocked me. We've never seen somebody so um, artistic with blood and gore and, and, and almost desensitizing us to it. Well, what, let me ask you that question then. Sure. How do you feel about Quentin Tarantino's use of violence in his films? Oh, I think he's done an excellent job of understanding why there is violence in his movies and how to use violence in his movies to advance the plot, 
to make you feel the mood or the atmosphere, to make it comical, to make it jaw-dropping. Uh, for example, if you go to Kill Bill violence when she's laying waste to that entire club, that's to show you how much of an incredible warrior she is. But it's so fantastical that it's also um, a, a send-up of those kinds of martial arts movies with a little wink and a nod from Tarantino. And those of us who love those movies, like you and I, Steve, we just enjoy that because we always had to suspend our disbelief when we saw these martial artists doing the crazy thing that they crazy stuff that they did and the movements that they had. But because it's a heightened reality, it's not disturbing most of the time. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. It's like fun. I think one of the underrated, most underrated aspects of Tarantino's work is his uh, is the comedy in his films. There's some darkly comic stuff in, in like all of his movies. But when he go, when she goes to face Orinishi, he throws all that out and shows you the respectful approach to a martial arts or to a sword fight, which is fantastic. So that's the thing. Tarantino knows this so well in terms of the violence. He knows when to use it for effect in every single one of his movies and why he does it. You know, he never moves away from the violence if he doesn't have to. And when he shows you the violence and it has to be a little bit comedic, like even the death of Hitler in Inglorious Bastards, it's almost funny the way his his dummy or prosthetic head is getting shattered open by these machine gun bullets. It loses, it loses its overall power for a fantastical dreamlike sequence that this could happen. But when she sets the um, uh, when the French actress or French uh, person sets the uh, film on fire and we see the theater burning down and people screaming and running, we see the Nazis. That's the violence in that moment that you need to feel is almost a sense of vengeance for what the Nazis wrought on this earth and the terrible stuff they did to Jews and many people while they were in power during that time. And those both things are happening at the same time. The comedic violence of Hitler being shot up in that balcony versus all the Nazis down there that you see dying in the fire uh, as retribution for the horrible crimes they committed. So he understands how to use it effectively in each one of his movies for the right effect for the viewer to be um, moved or entertained by the violence. I think you said that really well. And it's making me think a lot about, I don't know if the word sophisticated, but he is doing a thing that is so interesting in terms of his violence, which is, first of all, he wants to show you the violence, yes. you know, like he wants and, and he wants the choreography. He wants the thrillingness of it. But if you watch a Jackie Chan movie, which has tons of violence. Yes. You never feel consequences in a heavy way. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's, you know, this is all for fun. So there's no, there's rarely any blood in a Jackie Chan movie. That's just not what it's about. Right. Quentin Tarantino is going to show you the blood, but he doesn't do it in a way that makes you generally depressed and sad. Like, oh my God, I cannot believe the tragedy that's happening. What he's doing is making you feel thrilled, guilty for feeling, feeling thrilled and laughing at the, you know what I mean? I don't even know if it's guilty. It's more like it goes back to him in that fucking movie in 1972 yeah. of being excited by the naughtiness of the thing. Like I think he, he understands human beings very well. And yeah. most of us have a, um, have a draw to violence or gore, which is why the horror genre has become even bigger now. We have an attraction to it. We, we, are, we have to look, right? He understood that human beings 
There's a reason they call it rubbernecking. People have to look and yeah. see the results of an accident. People have to look and see these videos. And remember, in the 80s is when we got those phases of death videos that were showing people dying, supposedly, on these compilations and were big underground hits at video stores because people want to see that. So he understood we have always had a predilection to violence and the, and sex and gore and those kinds of things. And so he puts that in the right amount in his movies. He rarely goes the sex route. For him, it's the violence. That's yeah. what he understands people are drawn to, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or sexual identity. You have a desire to see this kind of thing, whether you want to admit it to yourself or not. Or not. And I think he's found a really smart and clever and intelligent way to appeal to numerous millions of people with the way he uses that in his movies. You know, so much has been said about Tarantino's use of violence and the way that he glorifies violence or that that he inspires violence. And I don't think that's true at all uh, because the violence is heightened. The violence is over the top. It's highly stylized. You know, sure, I think there are certain moments over the course of his nine movies where I go, even to this day, well, it's a hard scene to watch. But for the most part, I find the violence, I don't take it seriously at all because it is so over the top, because it is so uh, uh, heightened, the reality is very heightened, because it's so highly stylized. I mean, that's just not how it goes down in real life. So if it's not how it goes down in real life, I can't take it that seriously to a point where I just don't look at it as anything else but fun. So to say that Tarantino explodes on the scene at this point is an understatement because so Reservoir Dogs is this huge cult sensation. At the same time, he sells screenplays for True Romance and Natural Born Killers. Right. And he gets rewrite work. I didn't know that he did rewrite work on the classic film, It's Pat. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. Uh, it's and, time for androgyny. That's right. Yeah. And he also did uh, a polish on The Rock, mm -hmm. which is noticeable. And the one where I really can hear his voice is on Crimson Tide. That's why I like those movies. You, it, it, There's an instinctual enjoyment of those films and because they somehow elevate out of the genre that they're existing in. And I don't mean in some kind of highfalutin way. I mean that you find a little more intelligent, intelligence in these films with the interactions that you witness than you would normally expect to see in those kinds of films, which are in essence vehicles. Uh, yeah. But somehow, some way, Tarantino was able to find some uh, pockets in the film where he could throw in his style, his unique style of conversation, and the topics that are discussed in those moments. Um, I know I've said it before. I think Crimson Tide is a beautifully crafted movie, yeah. like in terms of just solid top to bottom. Um, I also think as soon as I started hearing Denzel Washington talking about Captain Kirk and Mr. Sk it's like Tarantino had to write that, had to write it. And I also, and again, this is where doing research on the internet is some is very, you know, flawed. But I also read that apparently Denzel was not happy about the racial elements that Tarantino added to Crimson Tide. Interesting. But I only have that one sentence. Okay. Like I don't have a quote from him. I don't have a specific right. example. That's just the one sentence I read. He was offered to direct both Speed and Men in Black. Wow. So immediately wanting to slide him into the studio system to yep. do action movies because of Reservoir Dogs. And certainly that's a tried and true 
uh, thing that still is going on nowadays. And we see it in the Marvel universe where they're always gobbling up these independent film directors to come in and direct installments yep. in their overall MCU franchise. And I think I, I, you make a great point. And I think we need to highlight the fact that he said, no, he never, yeah. ever did that. Yeah. I love that. He said, I want to work on this little film idea I have called Pulp Fiction. <laughs> if you thought those quirky stylistic choices he was making in Reservoir Dogs were just something he did on the low budget and he's not going to repeat them. Oh no. Talk about a filmmaker whose confidence was boosted in a very big way by the critical reaction to Reservoir Dogs. He went, okay, now I am unfiltered. All bets are off. And here is a filmmaker with a second movie making something so completely different when I was waiting tables, I was waiting tables in Santa Monica at a place called Pentala. There was garlic in the windows back in uh, – this is just before uh, Pulp Fiction, I think, had was in post-production or something like that. And uh, one of the sound mixers, a guy named Ken King, uh, used to come in all the time, and he was telling me all about Pulp Fiction. It was already wrapped, and it's going to be uh, this, this amazing movie. And he gave me the script. And – I was loving it. And then I got to the part about the gimp. Whew, the scene with the gimp. Holy moly. Ving Reigns and Bruce Willis. That that scene is still like, what in the hell is going on? Like, what the F is this? I'm just like, what the fuck? It was the biggest, as I'm reading it, I, I go, this has got to be cut. This is the worst scene i've ever seen before on paper you know it's the weirdest thing what the hell is going on this is not working this is a disaster and then i got invited by uh ken got me i, I think ken got me a ticket or somehow i got invited to go to the pulp fiction premiere and i was sitting right behind quentin and i'm watching the movie it was awesome. That scene was so great, you know, and I'm just going, <laughs> I thought I was going to hate this scene. This just goes to show you that really Quentin's genius and his vision as a director. I read that scene. I, I hated that scene. I hated everything about it. When I watched it, you know, it really made a really huge impact on the overall movie and made sense and it totally worked. And so it just goes to show you Quentin's genius and maybe my lack of judgment, I don't know, but, um, you know, and that stuff happens, you know, when you're writing. And so that was, that's kind of my, uh, Tarantino, you know, story, especially cause I hadn't sold yet. You know, I would, I, I was still, you know, the struggling screenwriter trying to be him, but, uh, um, you know, that was just, it just really put me in my place right there. Well, and I do, I do want to say this, Steve, this is, an important movie for a number of reasons. One, it's your sophomore effort. Yeah. How many first time, you know, how many directors come out the gate and their sophomore effort kind of stumbles. He is really expanding what he can do. He's taking a chance with this movie and something we kind of glossed over, but we need to really stress here in this moment is he is an incredibly seasoned, experienced viewer of films. Yes. In that video store, the legend of Tarantino is born. It was just just kind of mind-boggling to 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 witness uh, in real time going from being a video store movie nerd into arguably what we 
I think arguably people would say he's one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of cinema. How much is embellished? How much is truth? Who cares? We see it in his movies. He is so knowledgeable about the styles and the influences and the filmmaking and the writing and the directing and the placing of the camera. He is so influenced by the movies that he has seen. He's so knowledgeable by the films he's seen and watched during his time in the video store that Pulp Fiction, I think, is the culmination of all his experience. When you're watching that movie, you're seeing a man who understands film and filmmaking and has learned from some of the greats just by watching their movies or reading their biographies. There's no, I don't think there's any record of him going to film school or going to film school Hmm. for an extended amount of time or anything like that. He learned on the fly. And as Matt Damon said uh, in Goodwill Hunting, you know, you're going to figure it out that you could have studied this and and got your own original opinion about all this stuff for, uh, you know, $2 and 38 cents in late fees at the local library. So he taught himself And because he had a proclivity, an attraction to it, a natural predilection to understand filmmaking, he gobbled it all up. And I think Pulp Fiction is really the culmination of all of that when you see it play out. Because there are so many different influences in each one of those stories. I don't know if I've ever been in a theater and, and been so excited and and enthralled by a film as I was Pulp Fiction. That two hours and 40 minutes of that film, the first time I saw it, it went by in the blink of an eye. And that's the reason I went back and saw it five more times in the theater. I like I could not get enough of watching that film in a theater with people who maybe haven't seen Uma Thurman getting a, a needle jabbed in her chest. Like I know the moment's coming and I know it's fucking amazing. Uh, I just was like, my jaw hit the floor. And I read uh, that somebody, people passed out when that scene happened in the theaters, which is like crazy. But to, to see the reaction of other film, film lovers watch that scene and freak out and scream like, like yeah, I, I just got chills talking about it, actually. And, and another way, of course, that Tarantino's films are unique is the way he has resurrected or given a, a second or maybe in some case, even a third or fourth life to actors who are basically done. Before Pulp Fiction, Taren, uh, John Travolta was kind of done. You know, he's making really bad movies and, you know, look who's talking seven. I mean, John Travolta's career was over and Quentin Tarantino completely revived it on his own. Travolta gave he was a great actor. He went in the shitter and he brought him back. I really believed him as a drug addict, you know, in those scenes with Eric Stoltz. You know, some of those are the most you know, important scenes because we have never seen Travolta like that before. If you look at how he tells stories non-linear to reveal characters and to show payoff, he made that his signature in a way where if you, you know when you're watching a Tarantino film. People had played with structure before, but Quentin really defined it and he made it a part of his overall style and who he was as a filmmaker to just mess with your mind, to make you think, to make you figure out what's going on. Um, That was all new. He set the standard for structure. He set the standard for dialogue. He set the standard for different characters. He set the standard for really blocking out a scene. You know, you see a movie like Pulp Fiction, you're like, holy crap, you know, this this, this is the most mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. This has completely changed 
the way cinema will be made, the way cinema, uh, the way writers will write, um, the way directors will direct. And in terms of the impact that Tarantino had, look at the movies that followed Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, like Seven Psychopaths from Martin McDonough, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, Go from Doug Lyman, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Snatch, and basically everything <laughs> that Guy Ritchie has ever done. So you just see how everyone has wanted to be Tarantino, but in the end, there is only one Quentin Tarantino. I can remember seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater and being absolutely blown away, and so were a whole bunch of other people because it grossed over $200 million on a small budget, Yeah, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, he gets nominated for Best Director and wins the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Yeah. What an ascension. Yeah. In your second film, you've already won an Oscar. Yep. On your second film, for God's sakes. Um, and, you know, the uh, the Oscars at that time were notoriously, um, how can I say this, restrictive about who they gave Oscars to. Uh, and no young punk kid who's doing exploitation films or versions of exploitation films was going to win Best Picture but we could we could um, give them best screenplay to kind of soothe them and make us look better as an organization. We don't give them the big prize, but we'll give them one of the other slightly bigger prize or slightly big prizes uh, in as a as an organization or as a body. And I always thought that was a bit of a cop out when they did that. But you know, it's an incredible screenplay. It's a film that still influences people today. And of course, as we talked about with Sasha. It's one that's it resonates with so many people. If it gets the hook inside you, you never let uh, Pulp Fiction go. And so we're, so we're talking about Quentin Tarantino. We're actually going to re-release both our episodes on Pulp Fiction with Sasha and our episodes on Inglorious Bastards. And we will, John and I will record new introductions for them. And so they will also be coming out as we go through the season of Tarantino. I was looking at some of the lists of movies. He talks about a lot of his favorite films and most influential films in this book. And what was so interesting about that, it's not that he said that he didn't like Godfather. He loves the Godfather and some yeah. of those films. But as we said, it's the movies like the black exploitation films. It's films like Dirty Harry. He talks much more about Brian De Palma than he does about Coppola. Loves Sergio Leone and things like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Obviously, John Woo and the Hong Kong martial arts films. And... um Taxi Driver is one that affects him deeply. And I think you can see the Taxi Driver influence also in his films. Mm. And here's the thing that occurred to me is that, uh, you know, certainly we can call Tarantino an auteur. But what I think is interesting is that in a weird way, I think he's like an anti-auteur. And uh, I'll tell you what I mean by this. And the person I'm going to compare him to, you're going to think is totally crazy, but is to George Lucas. And here's why I'm saying this. Mm, Interesting. Is that if you look at Star Wars, and Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. What was George Lucas trying to do? He was trying to take these movies that weren't very good when he was a kid, which was these ridiculous serials like Flash Gordon, and make the really great version of them. What is Tarantino trying to do? Yeah, yeah. He's taking the black exploitation film, he's taking all these action films, and he wants to make the really great platonic ideal of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he succeeds. And he succeeds, absolutely. Yeah. One of the most important relationships for him, Tarantino, is a guy he meets at Sundance, and that, of course, is Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. And that is an interesting collaboration. <laughs> he shows up at Desperado. He They make four rooms, which is a kind of eh. interesting thing. Sure, you're being kind. but yeah. um, And then you get to 1996 and From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. This is a fun one. Um, 
And, you know, Tarantino, not the best actor, let's be honest. But I think Robert Rodriguez, because he knows Quentin so well, understood how to use him in the movie and understood how to how to put him with the right actor like George Clooney, because George Clooney can carry anybody uh, sure. in any film. And he make he constructs the film so that it works for Tarantino. And you walk out of that film going, eh, that's a damn good performance from that guy. Yeah, I think it is his best performance. Yeah. That's not the highest bar. <laughs> it, from Dust Till Dawn, I haven't watched it in a long time. I did rewatch some Tarantino films for, mm-hmm. for this. I didn't rewatch that. It's so bizarre because the first half of the movie is like a Tarantino movie. Yeah. And then everything you're setting up in the first half of the movie just gets thrown out. And now you're in a ridiculous vampire movie. It's very odd. Well, and I think, you know, if we were to ever do a separate episode of The Cinephiles, we explore Tarantino and comparing in comparison to Robert Rodriguez, you could argue they both came out of the gate with these fantastic uh, debut efforts that teased the potential of greatness. I think Tarantino was the one that really ascended to that greatness spot and stayed there. Whereas Robert Rodriguez's journey was a bit more bumpier. There were some weird sidetracks like Spy Kids and stuff like that, which I'm not bashing him for, but certainly he his films didn't turn out to be as uh, moving or as powerful or as uh, cinema changing or influential, in my opinion, as Tarantino's films did. And so that's another reason why you can give even more credit to Tarantino, who was able to keep surprising us and challenging us and entertaining us with each one of his movies as he went along. I think Robert Rodriguez is a great topic for either a cinephile shorter or a cinephiles live because yeah, there's so much to say about him. Uh, he's a really interesting guy and one, a person who I uh, am drawn to in a lot of ways, but yeah. yes, I agree with you that does not have the trajectory that maybe we might've expected. Yeah. His next film is Jackie Brown. Oh, oh man. Well, from that, I'm that seemed like there's a lot there. So <laughs> maybe yeah, just defer I mean, to you. I think Jackie Brown amongst the Tarantino fans. And I think, I think this is true. For a majority of the Tarantino fans, I think Jackie Brown is that one that they kind of look over or the one that they go, well, you know what? Let him have that one because he's clearly influenced by black exploitation. This is his naked version of a black exploitation film where he was hiding influences of it within Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. This is a full on his version of black exploitation film. He wrote it. For uh, for Pam Greer, she was nervous about it. She recently did an interview. Pam Greer did for so I think a show or a movie that she's in. But they ta- asked her about Jackie Brown, and she said she was extremely nervous about doing the movie because Tarantino had written it for her. And so you would think an actress would be absolutely like overwhelmed in a positive way and be excited. She was more nervous, and she was concerned that she could live up to what Tarantino had manufactured in his mind about her and how great she was. And I'll be damned if she didn't. She was fantastic in this film. And if you want to study screenplays, you watch Jackie Brown. This There is an incredible amount of character development and um, phenomenally well-written scenes between these characters that keep you on your toes, keep you on, your, on the edge. Does it all work? No, some of the, some of the De Niro, uh, Bridget Fonda stuff is a little weird, but the Sam Jackson stuff is chilling. This Pam Greer stuff is incredible. The Robert Forster stuff, uh, and and I think th- you know with 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 Pulp Fiction, 
Here is him. Oh, actually, you know, from the beginning with Reservoir Dogs, here is him bringing Lawrence Tierney and Eddie yep. Bunker in from his, from those times. You know, people kind of forgotten about them. Pulp Fiction, here's him bringing uh, Travolta in. And with uh, Jackie Brown, here's him bringing not only Pam Greer, but also Robert Forster kind of back into people's minds and seeing what he can do with them. The thing that I recall the most about Jackie Brown is the chemistry. The chemistry between Robert Forster and Pam Greer. They are both so good together and the way that they become unlikely allies in the film. But here are two actors who were whose careers had seen better days and they're given these excellent roles by Tarantino. And maybe that was a common bond that the two actors had that, that heightened their chemistry. But what I love about Jackie Brown is the two of them together. Jackie Brown is a reminder that if you find a director that likes your work, you can work forever. And I think this is an incredibly well-written film. Uh, that not too many people talk about too much or enjoy too much, but I do love it. And I rewatched it um, in anticipation for our, or at least I watched some of it in anticipation for our discussion and just was like, yeah, man, these are very well-written scenes and it doesn't get as much attention or love as I think his other films do. Well, newsflash, Quentin Tarantino, that guy can write. Yes. Like, and there are so many times in his films where I like, Okay, I think this scene is going on too long. Yeah, yeah. It happens more and more. But at no time do I go, the writing isn't, dialogue isn't sparkling, it's not interesting. It always is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackie Brown, I probably fall into the category you're talking about of people, like, consider it one of the lesser films. It is interesting. This is his only adaptation. Uh, it's based on Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. And yeah. he's reading the book, and all he can picture, he's going like, okay, I need an older, sexy, beautiful, smart, tough, charismatic woman and he keeps thinking about pam greer and what i didn't realize is that pam greer auditioned for the rosanna arquette part in pulp fiction oh wow yeah and so they had yeah and so he went well you're not right for this but of course he loved pam greer i mean you know who who, particularly if you love black exploitation movies it's hard not to love pam greer um and then he sees her at a party and says oh i'm writing something for you Mm. and she goes oh great whatever because you know like, I'm sure many yeah. young filmmakers have said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he sends her the script and it's, you know, in a thing, it says Jackie Brown on it. And the note on it, it says, look at Jackie Quentin. Yeah. She reads the script. She calls him up. She says, I love the script. What part are you thinking of me for? Cause she couldn't find a part for her. Right. And he said, I told you to look at Jackie. And she's like, well, I thought you just meant look at the script. Jackie, <laughs> you want me to call Jackie like, Brown. I you want to look at the script. Yeah. And so, so of course she was nervous. I mean, you know, her career had, I won't say it had tanked, but she was a big star for a brief amount of time. And, you know, this is a big movie that he's risking on her. Um, Elmore Leonard, by the way, says this is his favorite of all 26 film adaptations of his books. Wow. Yeah. That's a strong statement. It is. What, what an incredible circle too, right? Because of course um, he, as you said, he got, picked up for shoplifting an Elmore Leonard book. Well, here he is right. working on an, or adapting an Elmore Leonard story here for Foxy Brown. Or I Jackie, know you have, sorry, Jackie Brown. <laughs> you want to say that again? No, no. Cause I think it's good to mess that up because of <laughs> course, you know, it's uh, it's Pam Greer. Fox. I mean, that is what it is. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you are interested, there's the, um, I forget what it's called, but it's 
TMC and it's uh, Mankiewicz who does this podcast now. And the, the most recent one is all about Pam Greer. And wow. she is, she is a really interesting person. Yeah. Uh, this next film, I know that you have strong feelings about, you've already expressed strong feelings about, and that is Kill Bill. Yeah. This is, this goes inside my heart as my favorite. Like the, there are other films you can, I can argue that are technically better overall, but he hits me in that sweet spot with Kill Bill, both one and two. I, I never separate them in my mind. They are, he shot them as one complete film. They are a complete film. He only separated them to, to appease Harvey, who we haven't even mentioned. And I don't know how much we're going to mention him, but we obviously have to at some point. But like this, I always thought this was a crime. I understand why you did it. And it probably did work out for the best, considering how much Grindhouse like crashed and burned. But uh, I love Kill Bill. It just checks the vengeance box. It checks uh, the samurai box for me. Um, it checks the um, uh, jumping into ult- diff- the scope of it. All of it works so well. He slides into a little bit of the Mexican stuff as well. There's just so much about he- about this film that works for me. The, the weaving in of the animation with Orinishi, all that stuff. You you have the the unique fights, unique battles, and here we go again, bringing David Carradine out from the cold to play this villain and remind people that just because the pop culture and these executives chasing the green and chasing the dollar bills no longer think these fantastic actors are bankable does not mean they're still not phenomenal talents who can deliver when called upon in a studio film. I got to tell you, uh, David Carradine, I mean, you know, when I was growing up as a kid in the seventies, I watched Kung Fu. That's how I knew him. His, performance in kill bill volume two which which was a great payoff because the first movie is kill bill volume one but i'm like where the hell is bill it's kill bill volume one you never see bill until like like i think the very very end you just see him like and he smiles and that's it you're like oh my gosh i can't wait for the next six months so when kill bill volume two came out in april of 2004 i'm like okay finally and the beauty was was that after all of that buildup, after all that anticipation, boy, did you get the payoff in volume two. When the bride, Beatrice Kiddo, finally sees Bill face to face, Carradine's performance is so strong. And, and his appearance in the whole thing, Kill Bill, is actually very, very short. But he's so great in it that he stands out to the point where you feel like he's in it the entire time. And Carradine gives this monologue about Clark Kent and Superman. And that monologue was written in a way that only Tarantino can write it. All these other superheroes, these people are are, are hiding their identities from, from, you know, like Spider-Man or whatever. But yet the identity is he's Superman. You know, he's Kal-El and his secret identity is Clark Kent. And being a lifelong comic book fan, I got to tell you, like, first of all, I just went, wow, he's right. Like, who else but Tarantino could put that kind of a spin on fucking Superman? I just thought that was so cool. But it was Carradine's delivery that just made me go, holy moly, I have never seen David Carradine ever like this. Certainly not from what I was growing up. Tarantino gave him that chance. Wow. So you're going to be disappointed with me. 
in many ways. Okay, sure. The first statement I make, which might upset you, is I actually don't think that David Carradine is a fantastic actor. Oh, my God. I think what, and I think many of the other actors, including one whose name I won't even mention because I know you love him so much, I don't think he's necessarily a fantastic actor, John Travolta. But I do think... What is wrong with you? I mean, you don't think John Travolta is a fantastic actor? Oh. I think John Travolta is has been a really great movie star and a good actor. A good actor, not a fantastic actor. What I think Tarantino does that's amazing and does certainly with David Carradine is find the sweet spot. Definitely with John Travolta too, with Pam Greer, mm -hmm. is fine. I see that you can do this and you can be fantastic doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so so in that is is John Travolta fantastic in Pulp Fiction? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think he's fantastic in other realms too. I just don't necessarily think he's a fantastic actor, but I think Tarantino sees things in him. Mm. When I saw Kill Bill in the theater, the first one, uh, I was totally blown away. And all of the, because I, I was in, I was out of film school by, for five years when it came out. Yeah. And all of the references to the anime, as you said, to the anime, the martial arts, all this other stuff, I was just like made for me. And I absolutely loved it. And talk about a movie that is, that is very heightened and has has so many styles in just one movie. I mean, the whole animated sequence in, in Kill Bill Volume One is awesome, and that is that in itself is so stylized. I love this for all those reasons and more. And of course, the dialogue, the Superman thing, everything about it, and the way he constructs Beatrix Kiddo um, from beginning to end. She's one of the greatest heroes, regardless of gender, in my opinion, in the history of cinema. Especially after after Pulp Fiction, I don't think there's that much of a difference in the way that Tarantino has portrayed men versus the way he has portrayed women. Because, I mean, look what Uma Thurman did with The Bride and look what he did with Pam Greer in, uh, in, in Jackie Brown. Um, you know, look at the theater owner. In in Inglorious Bastards, I mean, you know, she, that was her her idea to sacrifice herself for revenge. One one of the things I love so much about Kill Bill uh, is that it stays on theme. The fallen warrior who's been done wrong didn't die and now deserves revenge. I love the fact that not only is the vengeance sought out, but but every time she uh, seeks her revenge, they all have a moment where they go. We deserve this. You know, you we didn't do the job right the first time. We didn't kill you. So you should be seeking out this vengeance and we should have we should be expecting it. Up to that point, you know, you don't really you've never really seen Quentin the action director. Uh go back and watch Kill Bill and go watch the fight sequence between um, Uma Thurman and Vivica A. Fox and and to watch that action being directed put Quinn in a whole new light for me. And I think he does a really good job of capturing our worst fears and then uh, making us stare at it. The fun of being trapped in a coffin and kill Bill. Uma Thurman's in that uh, coffin, busting her way through, literally clawing into the light, fighting for her life. He doesn't let you give up and, and you're fighting with her. So I think the image of the, of the, of the match coming on when she's in the coffin and the realization that she's buried alive is an image that uh, is burned into my memory. I watched it again this time okay. for, for this conversation. Yeah. And the things that I loved, I still loved. It didn't work for me as a whole anymore. You know, shame. that's a shame for you. I feel bad for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I appreciate your sympathy. <laughs> um, there should be a there should be like a sympathy card for when you didn't enjoy a good a, mo- a good movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear you did not enjoy this. Um. So, and I'll tell you one of the things that, and and it's why I've always liked part two less. Mm-hmm. Is I think in part one, in particularly the big fight in the club. And by the way, one thing we haven't mentioned at all is that. Along with Martin Scorsese, I think Quentin Tarantino is the greatest needle drop director of all time. Oh, like his point. ability to find a song. Yeah. Just from, I mean, do you remember when the Kill Bill trailer came out? Yeah. And that music hit? But it does. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, the battle of honor and humanity. Yeah. It's so good. And then, please, just from the first moments of Reservoir Dogs. Oh. Do, 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 yep. do, 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 I mean, I it's on H, it's on um I think HBO Max or one of the streaming. I've stumbled upon it the other day, and I just watched the first. I made Lindley sit through the first ten minutes, uh, mm-hmm. which annoyed the shit out of her. But I made her okay. sit through the first ten minutes because that whole scene in the diner mm-hmm. is fantastic dialogue. Yep. The references are all there, and then boom, the needle drop after going to black frame, and then the needle drop, and seeing them all walk in slow motion. That is one of the top five coolest moments in film ever and it's a needle drop and you're absolutely right yeah no so 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 all of that stuff with kill bill is fantastic i think in part two part of what disappoints me is it's in part two where i really see the difference between someone who's worked really hard at martial arts doing these kinds of scenes and someone who's a great martial artist you know and that's where uma thurman doing the kung fu training you know because in my mind i'm seeing jackie chan and like, there's just no comparison, and that's what that—that's where it kind of falls apart. A Wait, bit are you me. trying to compare Uma Thurman to Jackie Chan, and that's why it falls apart for you? Well, that's what Quentin Tarantino has put her in that scene. Yes, but she is a white woman learning how to do this, so the limitations there have to be adjusted of what to expect from her, right? Well, there's nothing that says white women can't be as good at kung fu as anybody else. No, but I'm saying you're expect. Well, okay, fair point. I guess what I'm trying. What am I trying? To say? Uma Thurman is not a martial artist yes. who studied in the Chinese opera from five years old. She's yes, a different. That, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And that is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> We're so, saying exactly. so adjust your expectations. I don't know why you'd want to see Jackie Chan in Uma Thurman when Uma Thurman didn't have the same upbringing as Jackie Chan. I think what we get from Uma Thurman is fantastic for Uma Thurman. And so I enjoy sure. that. Just like my expectation for Jackie Chan, he meets my expectation. Uma Thurman meets my expectation, and I it helps me to enjoy the movie. Well, it's I, nice that they handed out cards that said, look, the Kung Fu won't be quite as good as you might want it to be, but it's Uma Thurman. She's doing the best she can. I mean, Exactly. That's, exactly. <laughs> look, I think Uma Thurman's great. I think she does a great job, but it's just like, if you're going to, sh- and this is where I notice the editing, I notice how you're cutting around things, the way that it's just, and and the movie doesn't, it doesn't hold, and this is, and maybe, maybe I'm revealing something else here too. Yeah. Which is that, you know how I said when Quentin Tarantino came along at that time in my life, that kind of violence, that kind of masculinity, that kind of sense of humor, it just all hit home for me. Yeah. I'm 54. And the thing is, it doesn't all hit home for me in the same way anymore. Uh, you know, we've talked about watching movies at different times of our lives. And the thing that I keep coming up against is there's, and this is going to sound like a criticism. I don't actually mean it as a criticism because mm. Quentin Tarantino is being exactly who Quentin Tarantino wants to be. Yeah. But there's no depth, you know, not that there's no depth. There's very little depth in Quentin Tarantino. It's not trying to be deep. You know, Kill Bill is not a deep movie. 
I would say uh, Django Unchained has a lot of depth. And I, I might disagree with you. This is a fun conversation. I might disagree. I think there is much more depth I think in Reservoir Dogs Kill Bill than you give it credit for. I think Beatrix Kiddo has a lot of depth in what she is. I mean, like she was a woman who was essentially groomed by Bill. Right. Uh, seduced into this life. Became an assassin for him. Realized she didn't want to do it anymore. Wanted to break away from this thing. He kills her husband on their marriage, on their wedding day, yeah. then shoots her to kill her. And she fights her way out of the darkness, overcoming a guy who's trying to rape her, That's, takes his ugh. car. Oh my God, yes. You know, this is a fantastic sequence that Tarantino does not shy away from, you know, and then, uh, you know, finds her voice, finds her strength, and then one by one goes through each one of these people um, and honors them in death or dishonors them in death uh, and finds her path all the way to Bill, and we see the love she has for her child. This whole thing has been done so that she can be reunited with her child. That's the right. drive of a mother, wanting to be reunited with her child, wanting the revenge, yes, but also to find her way back to her child. And I think it's to see Uma's reaction when she sees her and the way it absolutely, absolutely. changes her. I mean, the interaction with the woman when she's doing a flashback with the assassin, that Asian woman who's the assassin, and that she's been, you know, she's tested, she's been tested positive, yeah. she's pregnant, all that. There's so much there to enjoy that I think, um, you know, you might be giving a little bit of short shrift through, which is, of course, you're right as a, a viewer of films, but I think there's, there is depth there with, with how Uma portrays it. I like all the things you're talking about, and I, we really have to say. So, first of all, this whole idea for uh, Kill Bill comes from conversations with Uma and Quentin while oh. they're making Pulp Fiction. Yes, you know this is so, and, and she's fantastic in the movie. Yes, and, and what's so cool because you got to find somebody who gets the tone, mm -hmm. and Uma gets the tone of Quentin yeah. Tarantino as well as anybody, and knew how to do what what was required of her for that film. Kill Bill Volume One and Two was a prime example of how strong a female lead can be. It's a beautiful, gory mess of revenge that we love as an audience. And maybe this is a good time to mention, you know, there's the car accident that happens where Quentin pushes Uma to drive that car in a situation that was not safe, that she felt was criminal. She also says that there was nothing about Quentin that was malicious. Right. He just wanted to get the shot he wanted to get. Our next film is Death Proof. I appreciate Death Proof as Tarantino's attempt to make a horror film. Okay, Death Proof was just fun. Wildly entertaining, has an amazing performance from Kurt Russell. Like, who, who doesn't want to see Kurt Russell play, uh, you know, a, a, a serial killer with a car, right? I love about Death Proof is just how much fun Kurt Russell is having in that role. But the problem with Death Death Proof is that it starts out as a as a really great horror film, and then it, it veers into that Tarantino vengeance story we see a lot in his films. Um, so for me, it's really uneven because it doesn't stay on story, it doesn't stay on point, but it just doesn't feel like a cohesive piece of work. I don't think it's one of his better ones, but I still, it's a, it's fun. And that's it. That's all I got to say about death proof. So I'd never seen it. I'd never seen it. I okay. watched it, uh, okay. uh, last week and yeah. 
the first thing I will say, particularly, it's weird because the movie's in kind of two halves. So there's the first half that's filmed in a very 70s cheap horror movie way. Yeah. And the second half with the women and it's sort of the big car chase and revenge stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Quentin Tarantino's filmmaking technique might be on greater display in that first half yeah. than anything else because he is showing you mm-hmm. how well he knows this fairly cheap crappy genre of film and all the all the way the cuts happen all the, yeah. the things that don't work the weird sound things the that needle drop yeah all that stuff yeah. he does so perfectly i don't think the movie's good <laughs> necessarily but it is really interesting to watch and well made yeah i i like i remember seeing this i think shannon mcclung and i went to see grindhouse in burbank and I remember just enjoying the experience from yeah. beginning to end. And it was the combination of the Robert Rodriguez film, uh, Planet Terror, and and um, Death Proof, and then all those trailers. So to me, you have to enjoy it all as a whole. Yeah. Now, they separated those movies out. Weinstein did because he was mad that the Grindhouse didn't do well. And he thought, well, look, I'll just ex- you know increase the length of both of those movies so that people have a better idea and that and they're regular movies and put them out like that. I, I think Death Proof suffers from that when you extend it out. The Death Proof that you get within the Grindhouse experience 100% works for me, and I love it. The Death Proof you get separated from the Grindhouse experience isn't quite as cool, isn't quite as um, uh, moving. And it may be interesting, and it may be, um, how can I say this? Tarantino was getting some pushback, was getting some you know hassle for the fact that the way he was portraying women in his movies, even though he'd had Jackie Brown and Kill Bill, there was this sense of like, well, you know, the man that's very masculine, his stuff. So I think Death Proof is a little bit of his reaction to that, you know, kind of like with PTA when he did Punch Drunk Love as a reaction to people saying, oh, he can't do a, a simple, smaller film. Well, he does Punch Drunk Love and knocks it out of the water or the park, rather. You see it with Death Proof. I think he was trying to respond to that. And I think that's why, and I agree with you, the second half isn't as strong. Seeing all the, uh, you know, uh, Mary Lou's the cheerleader and Tracy Toms and Zoe Bell on top of the car and all of that, all cool stunts. And then Kurt Douglas, or sorry, Kurt Russell getting his comeuppance. It's fine, but he's so, the first part of the movie works so well because, you know, that's, the real life that danger is always around the corner. These guys actually exist. And sometimes people are victims to these guys and it's a horrible truth of life, right? The that's more reality. The second part of the film is the fantasy in right. my opinion. And I think I agree with that. I think it kind of suffers in comparison. Whereas I think kill bill works from top to bottom, both parts. I think death proof kind of suffers when you get to that second part of the movie. Well, it's so so. It's interesting. What, a, what's interesting is Kill Bill is a revenge movie. Yes. Death Proof is a revenge movie. And Glorious Bastards is a revenge movie. Oh, yeah. Django is a, like that's where we're, that's the trail we're on at this point. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. You said something really interesting, and I just want to go back to it, which is I, you know, you've gone. I'm sure you've gone to the museum where you're walking into like a historical museum, and they're really trying to create the world of the environment of what it was like when you came into Ellis Island or where you sure. or you go to Alcatraz or whatever it is. Yeah. That's what Grindhouse is, I think. Yeah. Is that it's a museum exhibit oh. into this era. You know what I mean? Into yeah. This... Oh, no, very much so. Very much with the tongue firmly planted in the cheek. Yeah. yeah. Good point, Steve. Yeah. And what, what's really interesting is that the first half of the movie is that. 
because it is the the horror movie of the yeah. terrible 70s scary thing that's happening. The second half of the movie isn't that. Mm-hmm. The second half of the movie beces this other thing. Yeah. And 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 so and I'm going to say I'll, this is, I'm just going to repeat myself over and over again. It's not that Quentin Tarantino isn't crafting all of this really really well. Yeah. Getting good performances and putting the camera in the right place sure. and writing great dialogue. That that is like just understood that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. But it almost feels like he's stealing from himself, right? Mm. I mean, the sequence in the diner with the girls in the second half of the movie is very similar to the opening of Reservoir Dogs. And he's even move, he even moves the camera around them, you know? And so you're like, ah, you know, it feels a little bit like you're retracing your steps. Um, and I don't know that it a hundred percent works. I think it's for me. Uh, as soon as they go to that section yeah. of the film, it doesn't really work for me. And, I love, I have no problem seeing a guy get his comeuppance. I enjoy that in revenge movies. I don't give a shit about the gender. It's about the comeuppance for the evil person. Sure. But it, it the way it's done seems ham-handed at times and not as stylistic as you would like it to be. And I think Kurt Russell is giving the performance of his life as, oh. as, as the walls start falling, crumbling down and his air of invincibility is being shattered by these women um, on his playing field in the cars. I think is fantastic. His screaming, his crying, his, you know, yelling, his his feeling of unfairness for once he's the victim in the situation. I think it's a fantastic performance from Kurt, but the way Tarantino constructed it didn't quite, didn't doesn't work as effectively as the first half of the movie. And I think that's another reason it doesn't work. Steve is because the first half of the movie is so good. The second half of the movie suffers in comparison within its own construct, which is sad to see. You know what I think this points out? And although, you know, I've said that maybe at my age and the way I'm looking at films, I'm less into Quentin Tarantino than I once was. Mm. I think what Death Proof points out is just how fucking high his batting average is. Uh, Yeah, 100%. You know, because, because, okay, we've finally gotten to a film, you know, we're like, okay, maybe this doesn't work so well. That's a pretty good batting average. And his next film is one we have done and will re-release, which is Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. My favorite Quentin Tarantino film is not Pulp Fiction. It is Inglorious Bastards. Holy moly. Tarantino had such a range of characters in this movie and still kept them in the world that he created that I was blown away by Inglorious Bastards. I left the movie theater after watching Inglorious Bastards not knowing what hit me. And I was like, what was this amazing piece of filmmaking? Like Inglorious Bastards went to another level for so many reasons. The first of which was that first act with Christoph Waltz interrogating the farmer and, and the Jews are hiding under the floor. I almost look at uh, Inglorious Bastards as sort of a comedy, just a very dark comedy, for, especially when they're dealing with uh, Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz put the fear of God in me. How does he see Christoph Waltz, a German television actor? Where does he see him? How does he get exposed to him? So it's fascinating. And then says, hey, I think you'd be perfect for this movie that I'm making. You know, there are plenty of actors that could have played that role, put on a German accent. But there is something about Christoph Waltz that immediately appeals to Tarantino. To talk about taking a Nazi officer to a different level. He's scary and frightening, but at the same time, he's very, very funny and very, very smart. He's so charming, and he's really warming up to the the farmer who's being very, very guarded. 
And then he starts to change the tone of the conversation from being really warm and inviting and starts to get slowly starts to get very serious. And you see the farmer start to get nervous, start to sweat, and he becomes really menacing. And I got to tell you one thing about Christoph Waltz in that movie right then and there, I felt like this guy's going to win an Academy Award. And that's another aspect of his movies. They're so well cast. You know, we talk about it. You're, uh, you're uh, with Karen. You know, she's the casting director. Like casting films is so essential. You're a director. You know that, Steve. And his ability to find the right actors for the right style of film that he wants to tell is unparalleled. And finding someone like Christoph Waltz to come in and deliver one of the greatest monologues in, on film. Now, we, we talked two long parts about this, so I don't need to go into depth about my feelings about it. I obviously have strong feelings about it. But this is, I think, solidifying the rewriting history, historical revenge mm-hmm. fantasy, you know? I think that with Inglorious Bastards, the violence towards the Nazis is almost satirical and funny and something that we've never really seen before and very enjoyable. They shoot Hitler in the face, but Tarantino totally rewrote the history books in a way that as a Jewish person, I went, well, hell yeah. I I, I look at it more, and I know this sounds sick and wrong for me, but I look at it as kind of this comic romp set in Nazi Germany that's very, very violent. I just see Quentin's total voice as far as um, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun with this. I know that's sick and twisted, but that's what uh, I love about him. And then you get to a movie like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he once again rewrote the history books. And I'm like, okay, this is like a Tarantino extended universe here where it looks like kids, his history. And I like that. I really dug that. And with all the madness of the, or the nuttiness rather of the ending of the movie, there is so much, to me, depth and um, uh, tension and fear and um, seriousness through the first uh, oh, three quarters of the movie that when we get to that ending, you almost allow that fantastical ending to happen because you've been treated to one of the most unsettling um, films you've ever seen that really shows you the um, terror that most people must have lived under lived under with Nazi rule, the casual, vi- the casual violence right. um, of them, you know, that is uh, always unsettling to see when it's done well in films. Well, and to me, at least the scariest part of that movie is the opening. Yes. And it's 100%. just words. It's just conversation, which go again, back to Christoph Waltz. And, and it's funny as you were talking about how he sees, no one else saw Pam Greer to play that part. No one else saw John Travolta to play that part. Like he saw, or definitely nobody saw David Carradine and thought, I want to make this guy the big bad guy. Nobody saw that. Is that there's that quote, which, you know, is Robert Kennedy made famous. I actually think originally comes from George Bernard Shaw, which is the, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? I think one of Tarantino's amazing abilities is to see an actor and see them doing something they have never done before Mm. and know that they can do it. Yeah. Because if you go even farther with Christoph Waltz, it's one thing to think he can play this Nazi interrogator. It's another thing to think that he can play this bounty hunting gunslinger. Yes. I mean, that is even farther. And that, of course, brings us to our next film, which is Django. And I want to read you this quote Mm. from Tarantino. He said, 
I wanted to do movies that deal with America's horrible past with slavery and stuff and do them like spaghetti westerns, not like big issues movies. I don't want to do them like their genre films, but they deal with everything that America's never dealt with because they are ashamed of it. And I think that horrible past with slavery and stuff (laughs) sums up a lot of, I mean, that is what he did is he's like, I want to deal with this, but I don't want to deal with it in it in what I will call a deep way. Yeah. You know, like he wants to deal with it in a thrilling way in his way, in his way. Yeah. But without shortcutting how terrible that existence actually was. Right. I think that's, what's great about Tarantino films. He's got the black comedy within them for lack of a better term, but there's, but he never shies away from the seriousness of it. As we saw in Inglorious Bastards, you talk about that opening scene. How about the scene when she's sitting there afraid that he's going to recognize her when they're having the desserts yeah. or whatever, or the scene where um, uh, Daniel Brühl breaks into the um, film room and confronts her. And he had been so nice to her in trying to win her over. And then when she wouldn't surrender herself, he was going to rape her in her oh, place yeah. of business because he was not going to be denied what he wanted. This I so he does not shy away from the seriousness of this stuff, even within the jokes and the comedy and all of that. And the jokes, the comedy, almost within the construct of his movies, is just to put you a little bit at ease so he can punch you in the mouth with the serious stuff that he wants to show you. And we see that in Django. The for all the funny moments with Don Johnson, with Jonah Hill and the thing about the uh, yeah. the robes or the 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 sheets and all that stuff. There's also the seriousness with Carrie Washington and what she has endured as a slave. And we see the punishments that she goes through. We see the stuff that she has had to live through. Uh, and we see that with Django as well, with Jamie Foxx's character. And then we get Sam Jackson. And then we get Leonardo DiCaprio. And DiCaprio shows us what these plantation owners might have actually really been like. And it's very similar to the Nazi stuff. It's very similar in their approach in, in inducing terror while trying to have an air of civility within their madness of uh, dehumanizing another race, another gender, uh, and what have you. And so it just it's fascinating to see how he's able to walk that line within his movies um, and show you the true brutality of humanity while also entertaining you with some side uh, humorous uh, scenes. First of all, those scenes you bring up from Inglorious Bastards, mm. the opening, the the dessert scene, and the potential rape scene, mm. those are those might be the most, in my terms, deep emotional scenes of all of Quentin Tarantino, mm. probably since Reservoir Dogs, which I also think has some. Mm-hmm. Um, I I definitely. I mean, we're gonna go. We're going to go real deep into Django, so I won't yeah, go into yeah. too much of it right now. But I think what well, I think that Tarantino walks a really bizarre tightrope because of what we were talking about in terms of the violence earlier mm-hmm. is that there's this weird sense of humor. I cannot believe I'm seeing this. How do I feel about it? Am I going to laugh at it? That happens. And how that interacts when we get into this really serious stuff like slavery and the Holocaust it's hard and weird. And I think for some people, he walks that tightrope like perfectly. And sometimes for me, he falls off a little bit. Django Unchained is another film where I look at the chemistry as being the strength of the movie, the chemistry between Christoph Waltz and Jamie Foxx in that film, this, this, uh, this bond, you know, that they, that they form together, 
Uh, I thought Jamie Foxx gave a phenomenal performance. And Christoph Waltz, for the second time in as many as many Tarantino films, wins his second Academy Award for Supporting Actor. Extremely deserved. It, it definitely opened my eyes to a few things. One, I'm grateful to be born after 1979. But two, it really, that surprises me. But the fact that he's able to delve into the Black experience in that way is really impressive. So it, it, it almost leads me to my feeling and my point of view that color is not what defines us. It's an experience that we've had in life that defines us. And the fact that he, not Black, can really tell this story of, of, from Django in a way that feels real. It reminds me the power in storytelling is more about the study of, of, of the human condition. I keep saying that, but I feel like it's so true. And how the person that we're telling the story about goes through their journey and overcomes their obstacle. And he's brilliant at that, despite the color. Seeing a man in chains is not a, an easy thing to, to digest. But then I think, a black dude didn't write this. This tells me that um, he, he gives me hope that we can understand each other, no matter what the color. So uh, Django was his highest grossing film to date. He won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. It is, for some people, their favorite Tarantino movie. And it was certainly the first movie of 2012 that the cinephiles audience wanted us to cover, which is part of why we're doing this deep dive. Yeah. And for other people, there are elements of Django and some of other Tarantino's other films that people find um, somewhat disturbing. And one of those people is Spike Lee, who's called Tarantino out on his use of the N-word. And John, I wanted to get, what are your thoughts on how Tarantino handles this? You know, it's it's very complicated because I, I certainly would never begrudge Spike Lee's opinion and point of view, of course, because he is a black man. He's a man who's you know, made a living trying to um, expose uh, people to the black experience to, um, you know, he's cr created some of the most amazing films we're ever going to see um, that educates us as well as entertains us about the black experience in our country and in our world. And so I understand why he might have issues with how Tarantino uses the N-word, how certain, like he even says it in Pulp Fiction when he's uh, playing that character he plays that's a friend to Sam Jackson. Um, so I absolutely understand where Spike Lee is coming from. But I have to say this. In my opinion, when I've watched all of Tarantino's movies, I have never had an issue with the casualness with how some people use the N-word in his movies. Because remember, as cool as you may think these characters are, nine times out of ten, they're criminals. They're not good people using the N-word. I don't have any problem with the way that Quinn uses the N-word in any of his movies because it is part of the characters. It's part of <clears throat> the realistic um, uh, nature of who these characters are. Um, a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys have, and a lot of his characters have been in jail. A lot of his characters are very repulsive, you know, and they don't have a whole lot of whole lot going for them. And I think when you're watching film and you're looking at these uh, movies, it's important to realize that people like this do exist. They, they, he's not making it up. And I don't think he alienates us. And I don't think that he does it from a place of hate. Hardly any of the heroes use the N-word in a way that's derogatory, right? And I think that's important to remember when you're watching these movies. 
who is using these n the n words, how they're using them in the con context of the scenes, and what's being promoted. And I don't think he. And I understand Spike's point that he's saying some because some of the characters like Corleone, Michael Corleone, people think are really cool, even though he does some pretty terrible shit. What Spike Lee is saying is you've made your characters, even though they're supposed to be villains, they're pretty cool villains. So therefore, you're almost kind of rubber stamping the use of the N-word. What Tarantino is trying to show you is how these people actually talk. And we may not like seeing it. And I think that's what I'm saying. I think Spike Lee's got every right to feel uncomfortable about it. But Tarantino's trying to show us how these people actually speak and how they are and how they use that word still casually in conversation. We see it happen now all the time in our social media of people using that N-word. People who look like just regular moms and dads walking down the street. We see them in their most heightened moments using the N-word on camera to people of color. And it's just, he's just showing us how this has not gone away. People still use it all the time. And he's going to put it in his movies to showcase the authenticity with how people speak about black people, unfortunately, still in our country and in our world. But again, I want to make this very, very clear for any of our African-American listeners or any of our listeners, actually, regardless of color, um, who are offended by the way he uses the N-word, I absolutely respect that and uh, support you in feeling offended by it or having issues with it. It's just for me, I've never, I've always felt that it worked within the construct of the films that he's created. You know, over the years, I have come to see many people reacting negatively to Tarantino's use of the N-word, to Tarantino's depiction of race in his movies. I completely understand. I completely uh, support that criticism. Uh, you know, as a as a white male, I, I'm not the person to fight the battle, but I support who does fight the 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 the, the pushback or pushes back to Tarantino on that because as this movies have gone on, you know, it's it's gotten to a peak where he the N word is dropped many, many, many times. And it is, you know, even for, for me, even for someone who, who appreciates the heightened reality and the uh, uh, heightened style of his movies, it's a, it's definitely a much, it's definitely a lot, but again, there's something about his movies where, because everything is so heightened about them and because it's not reality. I mean, look at, look at what he did to Hitler and Inglorious Bastards. Look what happens, uh, you know, at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's not reality. I, I, it definitely makes me uncomfortable, but there's something about it that, that doesn't make it as hard-hitting as if it were just a more straightforward drama kind of thing where, where it is reality. Tarantino is very much on the record about um, his upbringing, you know, growing up in Torrance and the South Bay and and the, the people of color talking this way around him and and it being the soundtrack of his youth, right? I don't particularly have a problem with that because that is his experience and that's what he knows. And he's right, and he's you know, he's writing the the the, the most honest and real characters that he possibly can. So I've been thinking about this a lot. Mm. And the first thing I want to say is having read now about his background and where mm -hmm. he came from. Now, I've never met Mr. Tarantino. I don't have any personal experience with Mr. Tarantino. But based on what I've read about his childhood, the idea that he is a racist who hates black people seems fairly ridiculous. 
In yes. fact, it seems much more that his some of his most formative experiences happened within the African-American community. He admires that community, listened to how they talked, and that was thrilling and exciting. That's the first thing I'll say. So his use of dialogue, it feels so real, right? The way his characters talk to each other is so real and it's so naturalistic. And so if he's got people of character talking the way that he and his real life experiences have heard them talk to and about each other, I find it hard to blame him for for allowing his characters to talk that way in his films. Second thing I'll say, I've heard me mention this play I did called Brothers about race relations years and years ago. The N-word was used in that play. We had long conversations about its use, and I always felt, and I'm the one who pushed for it to be used, because A, I felt it was appropriate to the scene at the moment of where this friendship had gone, and B, I felt was the person that it made look really terrible was the white actor who said that word, not the white actor, of course, the character. So, so the idea, and and I a hundred percent agree with you that, you know, we're supposed to put the mirror up to nature and some people use that word. And so it's ridiculous to say to a filmmaker, you, you can write a character like this, but this word is forbidden. That doesn't make sense to me. It's a dicey subject. Right. And, and, you know, me, me as a white man, I like, yeah, it's like, should I even be commenting on it? Who knows? You know, I, I, I'm just trying to approach it more from uh, a, a writer's point of view where I go, if I, if I, I, I want the opportunity, I want the freedom to be able to, to have my, my characters express themselves the way I see most honestly. And I think that's the where Tarantino has always come from with it. I don't think the man is racist. You know, I think that if he was, <laughs> again, somebody like Samuel Jackson be like, hey, I'm not working with this guy ever again. And he and Samuel Jack L. Jackson keeps showing up in all of his movies. Words do affect people, yes. And in general, things only affect you if you allow them to. And I don't feel like he's racist. I don't feel like he's uh, bigoted or spirited to oppress Blacks. I think he has given several black actors great platforms to pursue their art and then enrich them for it um i think again he's telling stories about people who are that way and i don't believe that any white person should say that word because there's so much pain involved in reality when it comes to a movie some people say that word because our society is just so sensitive now and so politically correct. And they have to understand that this is a movie and these are characters saying these words. So it doesn't bother me, but typically I'm not bothered. Like if you want to use a word that's derogatory, no matter what that is, then that's more of a reflection on you. But I feel like he's telling a story. There are plenty of white trash he's showing in his stories. There's plenty of uh, Italian trash he's showing in the stories. There's black trash he's showing in the stories. He's not dedicating his life to making black people look bad. He's exploring the human condition. And so the fact that criminals or a slave owner might use this word at a time where that word was commonly used, that, that I believe that Quentin Tarantino as an artist has a right to do that. What I do feel is that there is this thing that he loves, which is the, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. Mm -hmm. And the thrill and the titillation of the violence, of the swearing that happens is a big part of Tarantino's movies. And there are times where I feel that the purpose is not verisimilitude. The purpose is not that it's within the character. The purpose is that feeling of titillation and going into the forbidden area 
and laughing or, you know, and so they're taught. So it's not that I don't think he should use it mm-hmm. or his character shouldn't use it. It's not that I think it should be forbidden. It's that there are times where I go like, okay, what is, what purpose is this serving now? Mm-hmm. Is it just serving that this is truthful to the characters or is it fun? Is it exciting? Is it dangerous? Is it against the rules? And that's where I go. I'm a little, I'm, I'm slightly more on team spike about some of it. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not about saying you can't use this. This shouldn't be in your in your toolbox as a filmmaker. It's about what is it doing? You know, what is its purpose? Well, and this goes to the thing too. It's the same with the violence on some level, you know, is that I'm told movies can be really violent and that can yeah. be fun and exciting. But you have to acknowledge that I'm using violence to excite you and using the N-word to excite and thrill people gets to be a weird space for me. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I had totally forgotten that the script to The Hateful Eight leaked in 2014. Oh, yeah, right. And I love what his response to it was. First of all, he thought about just abandoning the movie entirely. Yes. And then he decided to do a live staged reading of the leaked script and then rewrite it. What's your feeling about The Hateful Eight? I like The Hateful Eight a lot. Again, you're seeing a Tarantino film regardless of genre. It's a Western. I am the outlaw. I love Westerns. And I just thoroughly enjoy the writing and the dialogue and the interaction with all the characters in this movie and the pace with which the movie goes. I've seen some people complain about the opening 20, 30 minutes on the stagecoach. And I love those opening 20 to 30 minutes on the stagecoach. The only part that bothers me about the movie is Channing Tatum, who I think is the rare miscast mm-hmm. in a Quentin Tarantino movie. I, I like the character and how it's connected to General Jason Lee's character, but I think it's a horrible miscast because that dude cannot do Tarantino's dialogue. Cannot. And it doesn't right. work, and he's too pretty, and it yeah. takes him out of the movie, uh, and it's, it's frustrating when it appears. But again, Tarantino's ability to just essentially set a play within a house for the entirety of a movie and keep you enthralled the whole time is incredible. The Samuel Jackson's flashback to what he tells the story to Bruce Dern about what he did to his son is just incredible and unsettling, even though it's, it's the right kind of vengeance. It's an unsettling type of vengeance. And it's, it's a way of maybe turning the camera back on you as the viewer, how much vengeance is too much vengeance how far into vengeance should you go where you veer into the same territory that you're doing the same kind of thing that the other person did to you and you can't tell the difference between the two of you anymore? I found that when I watched that sequence recently, I found that to hit me in the face a little bit as I was watching it. But the way he, again, Tim Roth, Demian Bashir, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Bruce Stern, Sam Jackson, Walt Goggins, an incredible cast across the board and the way they banter with each other is so good. And the tension that he builds throughout and the switching allegiances and the changes throughout this, is the film that evokes reservoir dogs the most for me, because like reservoir dogs, it's either in the diner or it's in that uh, uh, factory place or wherever they're at there, the warehouse, this, the, the same thing with hateful eight. And so I love that he kind of went back to that. And I think he absolutely nailed it except for the Channing Tatum scene. It's so funny doing this show with you because they're talking, it's like, oh, damn, John's making exactly the point I wanted to make, which is that what, where I wanted to start was where you ended, which is it's the closest to Reservoir Dogs and the most like a play. I would love if someday 
there was a, a Hateful Eight show on Broadway. I would so go see that. I would throw my money at it. Um, I love the idea of Tarantino telling that entire story in one location. I love that he limited things, that he made everything much smaller, yeah. and yet manages to maintain his Tarantino-ness. My only objection to Hateful Eight, which I genuinely like, is my objection to basically the latter half of his film career. It's just too long. What I have to say about Hateful Eight is that it was the one and only time I saw a Tarantino film and I said, get on with it. I just felt it was extremely indulgent, overly long. If it was an hour shorter, it would have been a much, much, much stronger film. All right, Emperor. Oh, just cut a few notes and it'll be yes, fun. cut a few notes. Well, <laughs> my my job is cutting. <laughs> that is, what, I mean, you know, every every episode oh. of the cinephiles we have recorded is released ten or fifteen minutes shorter than what you you and I did because yeah. there were too many notes. <laughs> That's how my brain works. I and I unfortunately I have to acquiesce to Steve's opinion about that because he is the editor of this show. So I have to believe that he is cutting out the right notes and usually you, he is. So. You might never know. You might, <laughs> yes, I mean, occasionally, might never know. Occasionally, in fact, in our last episode, I said, hey, this thing could stay in or it could come out. What do you want? And you told me to leave it in, in that yeah. case. Um, but but in general, yeah. If, if I say um too many times, the um goes away. The um must go. The um must go. Uh, it, again, and he does like these sort of events, too, because this mm. was released as a roadshow in 70 millimeters. Right. Yes. Yeah. And there's an extended version. As if you think this isn't long enough, Steve, or you think it's too long, there's an extended version yep. that's available as well, which I have yet to watch, but I will absolutely sit down and watch it very soon. It'll be the world's largest cinephiles watch along. <laughs> and now we come to his most recent film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And now I think we should address uh, the disgusting elephant in the room, because this is when he finally broke off from Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think one of the hardest things that people ha are going to have to reckon with is how Weinstein influenced a lot and exposed a lot of current film fans, film lovers, cinephiles to these films that normally would not have, they would not have gotten exposition to. They would not have seen foreign films, uh, films like, uh, from independent filmmakers, you know, uh, films from female filmmakers. Uh, films that have an interesting subject matter that was considered taboo or films that didn't uh, that uh, expose things that maybe we weren't exposing in mainstream films. And so that's the unfortunate truth about Harvey Weinstein. And yes, he lobbied to get those films rewarded as well for his own ego, of course. Yeah. That also helped numerous filmmakers and producers and actors to be successful in this town and stay successful in this town. So it's a very ugly deal with the devil when you look back with Harvey Weinstein and the terrible shit that he put. And by the way, there was always chatter about yeah. Weinstein, even back in the 90s. There was always chatter that he was doing some terrible shit. But we've always kind of blown it off as, fuck, that's Hollywood, man. That's just Hollywood. Uh, and it still, to a degree, is going on in certain areas, I'm sure, oh, yeah. still today. Maybe not as exaggerated as it was in the 90s, but still. So, yeah. And, um, you know, I am uncomfortable. I know Tarantino's come out and said I should have done more, but I also think that's a little bit of brand saving and face saving because there probably was numerous times where he knew what was up. And because we know his films are hyper masculine, 
may have blown it off as him just being one, uh, Harvey being one of the boys or just not wanting to deal with it because, you know, maybe he did see some of these actresses as wanting to, uh, uh, as the lawyer has accused them of sleeping there. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying I can see that in the construct of the time of the 90s and how men kind of saw things back then or a majority of men kind of saw things back then. So it's just, um, it's an unfortunate situation on so many levels. And all of these women that were, and by the way, she said, if you guys haven't seen, she said it's out on Peacock. I love that film for what it exposes and what it, and how it turns the spotlight on Hollywood and the inaction of Hollywood when all this stuff was going on and the willingness to deal, to not confront Harvey. Um, And I don't mean the actresses who confronted him. I mean, the other people that could have done much more to confront him, but were afraid to lose their jobs, afraid to lose their livings and didn't do more to expose. And I mean, a lot of the men didn't do more to expose him and stop him uh, from doing the things that he did. Um, so uh, there, that's my complicated feelings about all of it with him, with uh, Tarantino. I think he could have done more and he said so, but I also think he's not a hundred percent fully telling the truth about some of the stuff that he witnessed and saw Harvey do. And I think that would be the way to really come to terms with everything and atone for not having done anything is to speak about what he saw, what he witnessed and didn't do anything about. It is, I think a continuing education for all of us, Mm -hmm. you know, cause we've all been at a party or at a place and we saw a thing and kind of went, that was, that didn't seem great. Yeah. You know, and maybe we said something, maybe we didn't. I mean, Tarantino certainly knew some of it. He was dating Mira Sorvino in the nineties. She said, he says that she told him, about our incidents with Harvey. Yep. He says he confronted Harvey and Harvey apologized, but I think Harvey apologized to Quentin, right. not to Mira Sorvino. Right. Uma told him about her experiences with Harvey and he says he confronted Harvey and he banned him from the set and from all contact with Uma. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is a quote from Quentin. He says, what I did was marginalize the incidents. I knew enough to do more than I did and I regret it. Yeah. And I think that's a good statement. I knew enough to do more than I did, and I regret it. And he marginalized those incidents, which yeah. means in his head, as a dude, he saw these things as not a big deal uh, and didn't want to deal with them because Harvey was very instrumental in in Tarantino becoming a success. Harvey was the one who promoted him, lobbied for him, gave him access, put him out there. And so it's, it's always a weird uh, – it's always a tough, rather – a situation to find out that your mentor was doing all these things and witnessing them. How much can you say? How much can you not say? So yeah, like you said, it's an ever, we're still learning how to process all that and evolving with it as well. Quentin describes Harvey as his fucked up father figure. Yeah. Bringing it all the way back to what you started with, Steve, the idea of him needing a father figure. So there must've been a lot of complicated shit that went in, that was going on inside of Tarantino as he was seeing this happen by one of his father figures. Yeah. So, but the reason I brought this up was because the first movie he doesn't make with Harvey is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot, but it's not Pulp and it's not Reservoir. The strength of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, again, is this building tension that we've seen Tarantino do so well with his previous movies but this is this goes back to Tarantino doing his old thing and kind of having the long scenes and not giving a shit whether or not you're bored or not. And this is my film and I'm an auteur and I'm going to do whatever you want. And he's earned that right. 
like Pulp Fiction and uh, Jackie Brown, where I had to see it a few times to really get it. Like if I was going to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood today, my review would be much, much stronger than the one that I wrote in the summer of 2019. It's very, okay, here's what I'll say. I do enjoy the movie. I own the movie in 4K. I bet it looks fantastic. It is beautiful in 4K. And shout out to uh, my uh, one of my uh, Outlaw Nation patrons who bought that for me for my birthday recently. Oh, that's nice. yeah, it's very kind of them. Um, I still, I'm like Steve Morris. The parts that work for me really, really work for me. The parts that don't really, really still don't, and make me uncomfortable, and make me question some things. And I don't mean in a good way, because I love to be challenged. Um, the first three quarters of the movie, I enjoy almost all the way. I don't really understand the Sharon Tate stuff. I think he pays little to no attention to that. And when you cast someone like Margot Robbie, I'm surprised that there isn't more here. As you were saying earlier, more depth. Because if I'm supposed to be scared that these people are showing up to kill Sharon Tate, I need to connect to Sharon Tate more and seeing her watch herself in a movie theater is not going to do it. Seeing her hanging out with Steve McQueen or whoever is not going to, or Roman rather is not going to do it for me. I've got to really dive into that. And Margot Robbie can do that as recently as Babylon, the the film that's out now in theaters. She brings an incredible amount of soul and depth to the character that she plays in that movie. So you connect to her and you feel her journey all the way to the end. And I think in this movie, he gives her a little bit of short shrift. So the stuff with Brad Pitt and um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is excellent. It's a great exploration of men at this age, men who are who are losing um, their mojo, men who have been famous and successful and great, who are now aging out of that time in their lives when they were that, men who are willing to be the beta to someone else's alpha, uh, but still retain their alpha status when called upon. And also men who resort to violence uh, in order to deal with certain things, you know. And so to me, the film works with the relationship between DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. But when we get to that ending, the film absolutely falls the fuck apart for me. And I think this is Tarantino's mistake in the movie is that he wanted you to do the research before you walked in to see the movie. So that when DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are killing those confused, fucked up Charles Manson people, It's because you knew in the history that they were going to kill Sharon Tate. And I think he should have done much more to establish the ferocity and the evilness of these people so that when he's killing these women in brutal, brutal ways on his film, uh, setting them on fire, smashing their faces into with with cans of food, all these things that he's doing to these women is really uncomfortable for me to watch because we haven't had it established that they're going to kill Sharon Tate and the reasons why. And, and and the moment you could have done that, which is when Brad Pitt goes to that camp and sees the Manson kids essentially kind of using Bruce Dern or Bruce Dern or whatever, we don't see the real evilness of them come through in anything that they're doing. And Brad Pitt gets the best of the male uh, figure there by kicking the shit out of him and making him change the flat tire on his car. So I think there's a mistake here in the overall construction of the movie that bothers me at the end. But everything up to the end, almost everything up to the end, 
I thoroughly enjoy. <laughs> it's so funny because, of course, that's exactly how I feel about the sequence. But there are a lot of people who totally love it. They're genuinely funny. You have that final scene, that the close to final scene where Brad Pitt is is tripping on, um, I think it was an acid laced cigarette. He's in a special place. Here comes Charlie Manson's kids. And the way he handles business while still being high as a kite, that whole scene plays so funny. Tarantino has a genuine sense of humor and comedy timing. That is also something that sets his films apart from that that group of 90s writer directors that he came up with. You watch DiCaprio take out this flamethrower and cook this girl (laughs) who's coming to his house to kill them. And even though it's so extremely violent, you're rooting for her to get what she deserves because, because we as the audience know they were coming here to murder them. So I have a lot of thoughts about this film. The first thing, just to start kind of where you left off, Mm. is if you're talking about the Holocaust or slavery, I don't have to teach my audience anything about why those are horrible things. Yeah. But most of the audience actually doesn't know the story about the Mansons. Right. And and from a, the scene with, you know, the interrogation at the very beginning of Inglorious Bastards, I know the threat. I understand that this guy is going to kill these people and he's after Jews. I totally get it. Right. And from entering the world of the deep South and Django, I can see the horribleness of slavery. I see the horribleness of slavery throughout that film. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to be explained why we need revenge. I've never seen the Manson people do anything. Right. In that right. movie. Yeah. So, so there is no re I don't, of course, intellectually, I know who the Mansons are. Right. So I understand you, that. You know that, you know, the history of them. Right. right. Because we, as the audience know, what really happened and then at these these awful people got away with murdering a house full of people it's kind of funny how you're like yeah i actually want to see them get the worst possible i, I want to see the worst possible outcome for them because i know in the real world there were awful murdering a-holes you know and maybe as moviegoers there's something cathartic for us to be able to to watch somebody who did some awful shit in real life just get their just desserts when they didn't get them in the real world i find that movie i was watching the movie yeah. And I'm watching like there's shots of Brad Pitt driving and the camera's kind of behind his head and he's driving and I'm watching him driving and I'm going, this might be the most beautiful driving shot I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I would go, why am I looking at this driving shot? Yeah. And that happened throughout Margot Robbie going to see herself in the movie theater and sitting in that theater. I'm like, she is sparkling and glowing and this is amazing. And why am I watching this? <laughs> Like I had that throughout the whole movie. I'm going, what the fuck is this movie about? Because (laughs) the movie has nothing to do with the Mansons. The climax has to do with the Mansons. Right. Exactly. When we get to, when we get to DiCaprio and the whole scene on the TV shoot. Yeah. His performance is astounding. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. One of the things that I, that I'll never forget is Leonardo DiCaprio staring in the mirror and, and you know, that long shot of him trying to get his lines in the uh, trailer and the vulnerability of, of age, the vulnerability of losing yourself and trying to be better is something that I think he does a really good job at. And this is deep. That's where I go, yeah. oh, there's depth and human character. And it, I mean, everything that's happening. So, and again, I'm going like, what the fuck is this movie about? Like, <laughs> why am I, what, what am I, even though I go like, this is amazing. Yeah. What am I watching? I was so confused by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then there's this weird, and I was just thinking about it, and this maybe is more thematic, is that, again, we go back to these masculine figures. Yes. There's a lot of father figures, you know, with Django and Christoph Waltz. There's a lot of, cla- and it's classic pre-1975 masculinity. Mm-hmm. 
obviously there there's a there's a macho-ness to them there's a there to the men there is a uh, a confidence i think that the way that he portrays men is from a very aggressive point of view and i think that's good i think that adds to drama there's hardly any wimps in any of his movies, you know. They all know how to use a gun. <laughs> they, they all know how to fight, and they all know how to talk. And And I think that when you have that aggression in men, it's very cinematic. Like, I go to the Jim Brown movie that he saw and exploitation wow. films and the ideas of revenge and pushing. And the thing, too, is that he loves Dirty Harry. He doesn't love the counterculture. You know right. what I mean? Right. Brad Pitt is dirty Harry pushing back against the counterculture. Right. And that and that and again you go to that scene, the Bruce Lee scene. Yeah. Is that it's the old guard pushing back against the new guard. And so there's this weird it's not that I'm a fan of the Mansons, you know. I, no, of course not. But but there is this weird like what is it you're trying to say? What and this is where I go to like what I consider to be his lack of depth is like I don't know what the what's the point. Why did I watch Inglorious Bastards? What are you trying to say? Mm. Not that the, the the experience wasn't thrilling, it was. But then what what do you leave? And this is where I kind of get to, particularly with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. What did you leave me with? Right. What do I end up with at the end of this movie? I literally have no idea. I know, and and, and that's the thing because. He constructs these, as you said, he constructs these fantastic scenes. The, the, the scene with him and the young girl. Oh my God. Is amazing. Incredible. And DiCaprio acts the living hell out of that scene. Yeah, as did. you said, the scene in the trailer when he is, how many men, I'm sure both of us have done this. When you're looking at yourself and you're just calling yourself stupid for fucking something up. We've all been in that, especially a critical thing. We've yeah. all been in that moment. We've all oh, yeah. done the self what do you call it? Self-sabotage. Uh, We've yeah. all done that. And a lot of you listening to us have probably done self-sabotage, regardless of gender, and had that moment where you're yelling at yourself in the screen or in the mirror or whatever or in a window, and you're just mad because you're frustrated and you're scared because you're losing power. You're losing the power you once had in your life, the youth, the virility, the muscle, the the uh, feeling of being wanted, the attraction, attractiveness of yourself. All of those things are working, and it's incredible to watch that as a man. It's incredible to watch that in DiCaprio. Brad Pitt is just the epitome of cool. It's another version of Steve McQueen in this movie. Totally. That's what he's playing. And I thought Pitt was just insanely good. Brad Pitt's character is the physical embodiment of that movie because he is exuding everything that Tarantino is putting into the film. It's coming out through Brad Pitt's character. And there's no real moment of him being you know, a lesser than even though he's willingly playing this guy's stunt double, he's never lesser than when he, you know, he's making the beans or whatever. He's watching the stuff on the TV. He's never lesser than when he goes to the Manson family. He's now he beats the person up. He's never lesser than when DiCaprio fires him for this, because uh, he's going to get married or whatever. He just accepts it in stride. And so there's no real feeling of like, well, what's going on here? You sense that there's a, there's a simmering amount of violence that, that is just right there below the surface with Brad Pitt's character. But when it comes out in that fight with Bruce Lee, I think Tarantino didn't do a good job of letting us know that was a dream sequence. He explained it afterwards that it was a fantasy sequence in his mind. But he if you've got to explain 
something simple like yeah, that. I don't think it ooh. plays like that. I understand. I, yeah, I agree. That, yeah, I don't it think it, play, it doesn't of, play that way. I agree, I agree with you, Steve. It might be a bit of retconning from yeah. Tarantino to avoid some of the backlash and criticism of it. Because Mike Moe, who I interviewed at Collider, who plays right. Bruce Lee, I interviewed, interviewed him for this movie specifically. He never once alluded to the fact that this was even off the record that it was a dream sequence or that it was a. He was just very honored to pay tribute to his hero and his idol in Bruce Lee, who he had done num- numerous videos about. That's how Tarantino found it. And he did a wonderful performance, I think, as Bruce Lee. But having this guy beat up Bruce Lee, I also thought, in a way, and some, some of y'all listening might be mad at me, seeing a white dude beat up this incredible martial artist, I thought was a step backwards with some of the ways that Tarantino addresses racial issues in his movies much more po- with much more potency. He doesn't do this here. I don't know why you use the Bruce Lee character, why you emasculate the Bruce Lee character, even in a fantasy sequence. Why would you fucking do that when you rarely have, when you rarely have that, when you've never had that character in any of your movies. So to me, I thought that was a mistake on so many levels and a bit of retconning afterwards. So yeah, I think there, there are issues with the film, but the writing is stellar and the direction, as you said, some of the best direction he's ever done in his career. So it's an interesting film to break down and analyze for sure. I I, I have one more thing to say, but I want to say something else first, which actually means I have two more things to say. (laughs) Um, And the the, the first one is, it's like, I don't want Tarantino to be anything other than Tarantino. No. You know what I mean? And so if this is the movie he wants to make, I want to go see it. And, and, and that's because that's who he is. And I, 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 that doesn't mean I'm not going to criticize it. Right. If I have criticisms, I will. But I want Tarantino to be Tarantino. The, th- the other thing I was going to say is I was looking at just my list of influences and people and, you know, things like mm-hmm. Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver and Ethan and The Searchers, which is another one that, yeah. like, you you could see. But you know what the name that he mentioned many times and is mentioned in his films, and it just popped up as I'm thinking about Brad Pitt, and that is Lee Marvin. Oh, yeah. I think Lee Marvin, that image of masculinity is so key to Tarantino. Yeah. You know, the I don't give a shit. I have it all together. Tough guy, sort of calm. I think I I think it's all about Lee Marvin in this weird way, you know, but it's also complicated because he rarely gives those guys a positive ending in his movies. Right. I mean, that's what's so interesting, too. Like, even if you look at Reservoir Dogs, Michael Madsen is the one that has that Lee Marvin kind of vibe and he gets shot to death. And he's a psychopath. He's a psychopath, but Tim, yeah, right. And he's a psychopath. Yes, exactly. Even in this film, even in uh, the Brad Pitt, even in uh, some once upon a time in Hollywood, if you you can connect that maybe Lee Marvin ish vibes to Brad Pitt, um, you know, he's got those moments, but he comes off as, in my opinion, he comes off as a brutally violent guy who um, would be very uncomfortable to know in real life and is also quite happy living a, um substandard existence it, it, so it's, it's it's interesting it's weird and it, it, i only saw it once in the theater but isn't it the whole flashback about whether or not brad pitt might have killed his wife or killed his like wife that? exactly yeah. by shooting her with a uh whatever they use that gun to shoot uh, animals with out in the water i don't know what that gun was that he was using but yeah so did he you did he do that did he kill his wife so there's that unsettling nature of it all you know so yeah I, well i am yeah. And and maybe this just goes to just something we can speculate on with Quentin Tarantino, which is the difference between the mo- the thrill of the moment and the point of the film. 
And if it comes to the thrill of the moment, he's among the best there is. Yes. Yes. You know, and when it comes to what we walk away with, that's where sometimes I go. Sometimes there was a lot there and maybe sometimes less so. Um, I want to talk, we've reached his last film. I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things he's done, which is one of the things he's done is brought a lot of foreign films, Hong Kong films and stuff Mm -hmm. like that to this country. He's worked as a producer. He's helped other filmmakers do stuff. In 2010, he bought the New Beverly which cinema, which is yes. for people who don't know in Los Angeles, this was the the movie theater that showed the old movies on 35 millimeter and it was bankrupt and going under and he bought it. And he says, as long as I'm rich, the new Beverly will be there showing movies on 35 millimeter film. Hmm. Uh, he actually reached, recently bought the Vista theater right near my house over in Los Feliz. And he's going to show films there too, which is great. Yeah. He is also more and more being a film critic. I saw some of his interesting takes. For instance, would you like to know what Quentin Tarantino's favorite Steven Spielberg movie is? Oh, my God. Uh, Sure. What is it? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, okay. Psycho 2 is better than Psycho 1. (laughs) Crystal Skull is better than Last Crusade. Oh, my God. So... But this is, but the reason I bring these things up <laughs> is it, sh- I mean, like Tarantino is Tarantino. Like, yes, he, I agree. 100%. He, he likes, and what he likes is not, I mean, he loves black exploitation films. Most of those films are not good. They're, they have their yeah. points to them, but in terms of what we would consider great films, they're not that good. Right. So I trust Tarantino to suggest films to me. I don't trust Tarantino to criticize films for me. <laughs> That's what I would say. That's well, what I would say. It, yes, I think that's a great answer. Because if you went to him and said, I want this, I want yeah. a really gory slasher film, he'd give you a great recommendation. Yeah, I also think, yeah. yeah, I also think if you said, I want a really movie making, make me cry romantic film, I bet he'd also give you a great recommendation. Mm-hmm. But if you asked for his opinion on which is the best Indiana Jones film, not so much. Right. Yeah. Because it isn't Temple of Doom. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not Temple of Doom. And it ain't the Crystal Skull either. Yeah, uh, exactly. Peter Bogdanovich calls him the single most influential director of his generation. I think that's 100% accurate. I think of his generation. That's the that's the clarification, right? Of his generation. We're, talk, we're not talking Scorsese. We're not talking Lucas or Spielberg. We're talking 90s filmmakers and 100%, I think it is. Well, how would you say that he has influenced cinema? Well, I think he's pushed cinema to ex- to open the door to uh, independent filmmakers to seeing uh, to discover the magic of those points of views. I think even now, as we're seeing uh, big IP pictures swallow up the movie theaters, swallow up the multiplexes, there are these independent filmmakers from multiple countries who have probably been influenced by Tarantino to tell these uh, quieter stories or these stories that move back and forth in time or stories that are influenced by films that they saw in the 90s or what have you. And we're seeing now the um, after effects of that. And I think Tarantino made it okay. He made it possible for these uh, filmmakers to find mainstream distribution. He made it possible for them to, for the studios to go like, I got to find the next Tarantino. So to give these films more of a chance uh, back in the 90s into the 2000s and now. So I think that's the way that he's really influenced um, our culture and influenced our cinema as well in in what he's exposed us to as uh, cinephiles and film lovers. And I must say, now that I'm reading my own notes on that, every movie that I've written and directed has had nonlinear flashbacks in it. So I would have to say, yes, he has impacted me. Obviously the structure, 
and I probably subconsciously stole structure for American History X a little bit based on, you know, what he had done with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and, you know, most of his movies. Up to that point, you know, when you get to like 98 or 99, when I really started like writing long reviews and taking notes during movies, which I still do to this day, that was because of the nonlinear structure that you saw in Pulp Fiction and in Jackie Brown. I think about it in a way like, how can I observe this film in a deeper way? And also what Tarantino has done for me is realize that it is better to see a movie more than once because you get more out of it when you see it again and again. Like uh, Pulp Fiction, you know, when you're watching a movie like that for the first time, you don't know what you're in for. You don't know like the the, 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 the timeline of it. So you got to go back and see it again to make sure it all works. And of course it does. I'm going to say something which might sound strange, which is I know that I've been maybe more critical of Mr. Tarantino throughout this conversation than people might have expected. Yeah. But not only do I think that he was incredibly influential, I wish he was more influential. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. So, So first of all, in terms of, the topics that we covered and the way we covered topics in film, in terms of violence, in terms of language, in terms of, you know, messing with the form, in terms yeah. of nonlinear storytelling, in terms of all those things, I think Quentin Tar Tarantino flipped the film industry upside down. And I don't think we get necessarily directors like David Fincher doing Fight Club or Seven. I think right. there's all sorts of films that don't happen that we're willing to push the envelope in also, or a movie like Usual Suspects or a movie like, you know, there's all sorts of films where it's like, oh, let's get into criminal things. Let's get yeah. into otter stories. Let's push the envelopes of what's possible and let's change the way we look at the structure of cinema, how we reference cinema, how we deal with postmodernism and all these things. I think that's really cool. And I think with the rise of the franchise movie, the Marvel movie and Star Wars and all these things, a lot of that stuff has gone away. Yeah. And I wish... Harvey Weinstein is a scumbag, but he's also a scumbag that saw in Tarantino a visionary artist and found ways to allow him to make those kinds of movies. And, and then went and found more of them to and give found him more of kind them. of treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we don't have uh, Hollywood is not supporting those kinds of filmmakers to make mainstream films anymore. No. They are being made. Yeah, they are. But and, and there's some supporting. You know. Yeah, but not like that. And so. And it's not the fact, but what I think was first imitated in the mid nineties was like, Oh, people like things that are really violent with lots of fast talking and lots of swearing. Let's do that. Yeah. And I don't think that works so well, but visionary artists who see the world in a certain way. That's what I think I wish. That's why I say like, I wish we had more of that. I wish we had more of that. I watched an interview that he gave and he said, I'm just telling stories that I like. You guys are just watching him, but he's making the movies for him. And I think that is a, a, that, that's a, a theme for young filmmakers who get stuck. I've experienced this. We get stuck trying to make a movie that the studio will like, trying to make a movie that the producer will like, that the, the money person will like. Whereas he says, this is the movie that I like, and this is how I'm making it. I mean, you weren't seeing too many. I mean, you were seeing John Waters films in the 80s, and you were seeing right. some of these, like David Cronenberg. Right. But you weren't seeing what Tarantino did in the nineties. Like you weren't seeing that. And I think that's where things changed and that influenced so many as we see now. And, and from multiple countries, by the way, we're seeing incredible films from Iceland and from other countries 
that uh, that even Mex- you know even closer to home in like Mexico that are influenced by what Tarantino did. And I think we've seen TV series that are influenced by what Tarantino did as well. So what would you say then to people who think that Tarantino is actually overrated? So over these last 30 plus years of being a, a Tarantino fan, and by that I mean I've seen his movies many, many, many times. I've also started to hear and read as uh, social media, you know, people saying Tarantino is, brace yourself, overrated. My response to that assessment of Tarantino is you're overrated to say that. Anytime someone says someone's overrated, that person who they're speaking of has had an impact to cause you to speak about them. So the mere question indicates that he's not overrated. He's impactful culturally and to the industry. Because in no way do I think a director that whose every film now is met with such glee and anticipation that does not come from a filmmaker whose movies are overrated. That comes from a filmmaker whose movies are, even after all of this, underrated. His film career, he hasn't always been perfect, but he's been pretty damn close. I think he's probably batting about uh, seven or 800. And, you know, if you are uh, batting seven or 800 in a baseball game, you uh, are considered the greatest baseball player of all time. You know, like I said earlier, he's a brand unto himself. And if I'm a studio and I know that I'm, I have Tarantino on my roster, I'm making a film for me, you know, you've got, you've got a hit on your hands before anybody's even bought a ticket because you know, the film's going to be awesome. You know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have a dud on his resume. Imagine 10, maybe 20 years from now, after time has given his body of work a form of perspective, when you can see something as a body of work and you can see the influence of certain films on movies, on TV, on pop culture. I can't wait, and I hope I am alive to see the day where those books and those, you know, those documentaries are made about Tarantino, because I think we are still wrapping our heads around Tarantino. There is so much to his movies. Like I still, to this day, when I go back and watch Pulp Fiction and even Jackie Brown, which I think is his most underrated movie, I find new things about them. I don't give any credits at all to to the uh, notion that Tarantino is overrated. There is nobody like him. There is nobody like him. Like his love for cinema is so completely obvious the way he makes every frame count, every directing style count, every moment of dialogue count. Nobody writes him like Tarantino. He writes like he directs with such style. I really think no one else can do what he does in in his films and in, in, in his writing. And it's kind of incredible. And I think when it comes to Tarantino, when he does finally wrap it up and call it a day, people are going to look back on his career and go, he was more than just a great director. He was the goat. He was the goat. So Mr. Tarantino has been very vocal about the total length of his career. He has said that he will make only 10 films. Yeah. He's already made nine. So is the guy really going to retire? 
Before I answer this question, let's have a conversation about your idea of calling him Mr. Tarantino. You, you, throughout this entire conversation, you've treated him with the utmost respect and dignity. And I, I have to say, <laughs> I commend you on this because I know I get crap from our fans sometimes when I just call him Quentin or I call any of the famous people by just their first name. And I get it. I get it. But so I, I just want to give you a shout out for the respect that you're giving Mr. Tarantino um, for his, his approach. Um, that being said, because I imagine he would not, he would want to be called Q or Q Quentin or something, but I don't know I, if I'd call him Q. I don't know yeah, if I, yeah, I, fair I, would, I would feel weird if I did that. <laughs> Especially with the Star Trek blood. That's right. <laughs> um, oh my God. So Quentin Tarantino with the powers of the Q, oh, that is not a good, that's, that's sad. A scary thing to think about. Yeah. But no, when you talk about retirement, I think it's a fascinating conversation to have with someone like Quentin Tarantino because do you wonder, you wonder to yourself, is he really going to stop at 10? Is this, um, you know, a ploy to get attention or to get more, is it uh, to get more, um, how can I say this, more more leverage if he used to come back and do an 11th film? Is he just saying this stuff because he wants to maybe retire and head on off and just focus on writing? Because I think although he loves directing and talking about films, and obviously he wrote that book recently that you read that uh, was a good basis for this conversation. I also think at the end of the day, man, like he's a screenwriter. That's what he loves to do, really. More than anything else, it seems like that's where he lives and breathes. Has he finally come to the age, because he's like 60 years old, has he come to the age where he's mellowing out and he's okay with other directors directing his stuff? Because I know when he first started out, he didn't speak well of a couple of the adaptations of his stuff. And I think him and Oliver Stone had a falling out over Natural Born Killers. Um, and I don't know how he feels about True Romance and what Tony Scott did with it which I love that film. So I wonder if maybe he's at that point where, okay, I'm just going to sit back and become a screenwriter for a while. But you never know if 10, 15 years down the road, he might want to get behind the camera again. It could be really interesting. Or, and I'll tell you something else that could be crazy, Steve, he could become a teacher. He, him in a classroom, would you could charge whatever you want to charge if he would be a sure. guest professor or a professor who comes in for a few years and teaches at like USC or someplace, people would, you know, go crazy to try to get into his class and be taught directing by Quentin Tarantino. That could be a great way for this once rebellious young punk video store clerk who became one of the greatest directors ever to kind of give back to the community that gave so much to him and teach the new wave of young directors how to have confidence and how to deliver a fantastic product. So first of all, you're right. The Quentin Tarantino masterclass or however he did it, oh. that's going to make some good money. That's going to be a very popular class. Right? I have a question, actually. I don't know. When did this start? This I'm only going to make 10 films. I Him. feel like it. Yeah. But when do you remember when it was? I don't remember what it was, but it was in an interview. Yeah, it was a little bit. Of, it's, a, it's a little bit ago. Yes, for sure. Yeah. It wasn't recent. Yeah, Because I don't think there's any other filmmaker who's ever made a statement like this. You know why? Because every other filmmaker doesn't have the track record he has. So they're just like, okay, am I going to be able to do my next film? You know, like Spielberg never said 10 and that's it. You know, it, it, they're always hustling for the next thing, you know? I mean, I think Spielberg is pretty clear. I My guess is he's going to keep making movies until... Yes. the end yeah yes. they're gonna have to they're gonna have to carry him away from the he might set. die on a movie set steve yeah. yeah so tarantino has stated in recent years that he's going to stop making movies after 10 films 
there's something about me that actually believes that might be true. And here's why. He is now a father. He does not live in the United States. He's married. He's going to be 60 years old this year. 60 years old. Quentin Tarantino is going to be 60 years old. That to me is a, is a brush with mortality when I think that, you know, this uh, hot as hell filmmaker from Reservoir Dogs is going to be 60 years old. So the, uh, there's a big part of me that actually does think that he will stop at 10 movies. I feel like he's just marketing his next few movies. I'm only going to tell 10, so get, make sure you see these 10. And then he's going to have his comeback. One more match. It's genius for him to say, you know, because uh, the moment he comes out of retirement, whatever studio to do his next movie, they're going to back up the Brinks truck uh, for him and give him whatever he wants. If I was Quentin Tarantino, after every movie I did, I said I would retire. I think it's such an odd thing. And the, the first thing I would say is like, we say a lot of stuff when we're younger yes. that maybe when we get a little older, you you kind of say no. The other thing I keep thinking about is that it's just almost no athlete ever retires from the ring or whatever their sport is at the right time. They always want one more game. And so the idea that Tarantino is going to make this 10th film and then just be like, I'm done and walk away and never. I mean, I know for me. Yeah. I can't not come up with ideas and things that would be interesting and projects I want to do. Right. Now I'm not in any way comparing myself to Q, but, but I, I, I know, I assume that he's the same way. I mean, he's got to have ideas coming out of everything. John, I think that storytellers, they have a sickness and that sickness is to get that story out of their head and into a place that they can experience it. I think Twitten Tarantino is plagued with the gift of storytelling and i cannot imagine that he will find a way to express himself with the same level of expertise and specificity that he does in making movies that man was put on this earth to write screenplays and make films and i can't see why if he's got perfect health and there's not something some other great new adventure that is going to take his time up the, in the way that writing and, and making films does. I can't see him staying away forever. But he's so into telling movies his way. I cannot imagine him just going to Bali and re relaxing on a beach. I think he's going to be telling stories his whole life. There's going to come a time where that ache to be behind the camera and to, and to be writing <laughs> 180 page scripts is going to come roaring back. And it'll be amazing. We'll all be like, ah, Tarantino is back. Fantastic. And it'll probably make $400 million because, uh, you know, it probably won't be a Tarantino film for a decade. But, you know, everybody and their brother will go see it when he comes back. Maybe it'll be Kill Bill 3. Wouldn't that be an, uh, an amazing thing to uh, check out? If he does retire, I'd be shocked. Here's his exact quote to GQ. You know, this, is, okay. this was for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He said, I think when it comes to theatrical movies, I've come to the end of the road. I see myself writing film books and starting to write theater, so I'll still be creative. I just think I've given all I have to give to movies. So I can understand that point of view. And I hear what you're saying, Steve, but you haven't had the experience he has, right? No, no. Your stuff has not been optioned and made, and you've been at the Oscars and won awards and been on the grind of the just movie set. rubbing it in, man. No, just I'm like just <laughs> just you know, when you experience all of that combined with writing and 
um, you know, being driven to create these fantastic screenplays and then having to one up yourself. And when you don't getting vilified by the critics and the fans that you've come to create an expectation of greatness with, then that can get on your nerves. And, uh, you know, he's like I said, he's 60 years old. Maybe he's just at that age where it's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit back here and become this reclusive hermit who writes all this stuff and gets into all this stuff. And he goes back to who he was from the beginning. I mean, I think it would be hilarious if he ended up becoming like a manager of a video store for a while. Like, I think it would be hilarious to see Quentin go back to where he started. It would be a story within itself if about his life if he ended up doing that. And certainly we know there are artists who, at the tail end of their careers, regress back into this simulated hermitude um, because they've had enough and they've lived everything you could possibly live as an artist in their chosen field. And they just want to relax now and not deal with all the drama of it anymore because it can be all consuming and exhausting, I imagine. Well, it's so funny. I mean, like you are 100 percent right that I haven't had any of the experiences (laughs) that Tarantino has had, but. I don't want to have really very much to do with Hollywood at all. So like, yeah, I mean like the idea of like going to work for a studio and going through all that crap to make a movie. Yeah. I get it. So I, and I will say on behalf of the cinephiles, we wish Mr. Tarantino. Well, yes, absolutely. What, what do you think though? But you didn't answer the question. Let me do all the talking. What do you think? Do you think he will quit after a 10th movie? Do you think, or do you think this is leverage? Do you think this is a ploy? Or do you think he really means it? I he read his book. So uh in his book, it seemed really clear he wanted to write more books. Like okay. that that is one thing. Okay. I think and what's interesting about Tarantino too is that he hasn't made that many movies. I mean, yes, nine, nine. films, yeah. nine films over 30 years is not a lot of movies. And so my guess, and as far as I know, is there even a rumor of what the t- next movie is? There is all kinds of um, speculation because he's mentioned the Star Trek thing. Right. He's mentioned a couple of the things. But, you know, with Tarantino, only he knows what his 10th movie will be. Right. But there's nothing there's nothing in the in the development that we know about for zero. So that means it's going to be a few years at least until Mm -hmm. the next one. So my feeling is, yeah, I think he will stop. And then I think 12 years from now, he'll do one more. That's my that's my gut. Well, nothing says his 10th movie has to be now. It could be 15 years from now, his 10th movie, yeah. which is very possible. So then what are your final thoughts? On, <laughs> I don't know if it's final thoughts. What are you? Yeah. Let me ask you the question in a different yeah. way. We are about to spend another month probably talking about Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs and Shango. What 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 are you excited about? What 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 are you excited about spending so much time with Mr. Tarantino? I think what I'm always excited about when we spend time with the director is the discoveries that we're both going to have as we walk down this path that we, you know, cause Steve, you and I have very strong opinions about movies. That's why we do the cinephiles and why we enjoy having discussions, but we also create space to understand each other's points of views or some of our uh, viewers or listeners points of views, even the ones uh, where you're incorrect. Yes, exactly. And I've made a card for you. for that. <laughs> but, but yes. And, and, you know, we have these strong opinions but we're always uh, amazed at what we discover as we dive into a movie, either by the facts or the research or conversations when we're looking at films in a certain way and the interpretation of them. So this is what I'm looking forward to is discovering even more about why I enjoy Tarantino and being open to some of the things that make me uncomfortable about Tarantino and be more concrete in my analysis of both of those things 
as I climb out of this season of Tarantino with you. I think the thing I'm most excited about in a weird way, more than any other director we've jumped into since Coppola is we are entering a world, Mm -hmm. you know, do the right thing. And Malcolm X are both clearly Spike Lee films, but the worlds they exist in are very, very different. Yeah. Whereas this is Tarantino. We're about to enter his world. And for me, at least that's a world of tremendous craftsmanship, incredible dialogue and intensely personal artistic vision and a lot of stuff that could be really thrilling. So I think this is going to be a, a hell of a season of Tarantino. Oh, look at the big brain on Steve. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so that's uh, that's where we're beginning our journey. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on our Facebook page. You can search for us, Cine underscore Files on Twitter, Cinefiles Podcast on Instagram. Subscribe to the show at all the usual places on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Stitcher, Spotify, Please, if you haven't already, those reviews on Apple Podcasts, they mean a lot to the show. And we really would appreciate you just taking one minute to go write that we're the finest movie podcast ever in the history of movie podcasts. That's all we're asking for. And if you want to leave your comments on YouTube, you can. If you want to buy, we're going to put up, just as we have with every other director, I will put up a link to on our website, cinephiles.net. You can buy not only Reservoir Dogs and Django Unchained, but every one of Quentin Tarantino's movies or stream them. And you can also buy his book there. We're going to put all that up on cinephiles.net. And you can support the show where we're going to put out to our patrons at a certain level that they can ask questions about our upcoming Tarantino movies, Reservoir Dogs and Django Unchained. That will be at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram and enterprise incidents where we are beginning the animated series still with the original cast. John, how would people find you? Yeah, you can always find me at the Roka says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roka says my other podcasts, um, the top 10 for as long as you guys know, I've made the announcement uh, maybe some of you haven't heard that recently. Uh, the announcement went out today. Today is we're recording this, but we are ending the top 10 at the end of February. So uh, listen to those final few episodes if you can. And if some of you are patrons of the top 10 and the cinephiles and you'd like to up your patronage of the cinephiles and move your patronage over from the top 10 to the cinephiles, please consider doing that as well, because this is the place where I will be talking movies with uh, my co-host, Steve Morris. And uh, sad to see top 10 go but also know that I've got other stuff that I'm working on that's great. And Matt's got other stuff that he's working on that's great as well. So consider contributing and uh, pledging at a certain level here on the Cinephiles. And for any of you who are listening to us and haven't been able to or haven't been motivated to do so, please consider sponsoring us here or or, um, uh, being a patron here of the Cinephiles because we are tirelessly, tirelessly working every week to bring you quality content about the thing you love the most, and that is film. And I think all of us should raise a glass to the memory of the other greatest podcast movie podcast of all time, the Top Ten Show, and honor it. And we'll be back to dig very, very deep into the world of Mr. Quentin Tarantino right here on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.